Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a loaded Friday show for you. A little bit different. We are not doing Mailbag Friday. I think we're going to switch it around for this week based on how the schedule worked out. We, uh, we will get to the people's holiday, though. I think what I'm going to do is have uh, take a mailback Sunday type of thing with uh, Colin after Ole Miss's Oral Roberts series. Nice little checkpoint as Ole Miss gets into conference play. So I think what I'm going to do it, I think I'm going to do it that way, I should say. Today we have former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray. Hadn't talked to him in a couple weeks. He will uh, talk a lot about the future of the Ole Miss basketball program, what Kermit Davis needs to do to fix it, assuming he gets another year. Again, we're all kind of operating – under that assumption. And Bracken had some really interesting stuff about uh, the way Kermit's recruited and how that maybe mirrors what his assistant staff looks like. Um, and I found some of that fascinating. So really good stuff there. And then I had Michael Borky on, on the back end to talk a variety of different topics. We ended up getting on basketball for probably 30 minutes or so. I don't think it's overly repetitive from what Bracken and I had, but it wasn't the original plan to put these two in the same podcast. It's just kind of the way the two interviews worked out and the schedule. Colin, uh, Colin had some baseball uh, to attend to. The baseball he actually coaches, not the millions of dollars I pay him to be on this podcast. So uh, dealt with a couple of high school baseball rainouts, which uh, kind of threw off the podcast schedule. So never thought I'd say that sentence out loud. But anyway, I don't think the conversation too repetitive. And then Borky and I dove into some baseball and even some NBA and NFL stuff towards the end. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Hopefully, like I said, the two basketball uh, conversations aren't overly repetitive, but I don't think they are. So buckle up. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has propelled Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. A lot of dudes checking in on the message board, tapping into the uh, March Madness package. You should do the same if you haven't. Skybox's March Madness package is live on the site right now. They're absolutely crushing it. I saw they went 5-0. and oh on a couple over-unders that they put out yesterday, or five over-unders. I guess it would be hard to do that with two over-unders. But uh, plus nine units on the day on Thursday. How about that nice little uh, start to your March? Um, That's always a nice plus. You need to check them out. So go find the March Madness package. You use the promo code MADNESS, and you get 25% off. For all other picks packages, if you just want to use it for like a day or get their week pass, use that promo code RIPPEE, R-I-P-P-E-E, and it'll give you 20% off. Skybox owns March Madness. And they're going to profit, and you need to follow the Skybox to profit because I promise you when you sit down next week for the marathon that is 32 basketball games the first two days and then 16 over the next two, you're not going to profit going off your own knowledge in your own brain. Just not going to happen in the long run. Skybox will consistently lead you to profit, and that way you're texting the man asking where your supplementary income is versus him texting you on a Monday morning when you already got the scaries what, uh, where, where you can square up. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com, the absolute best in the industry. I had a suggestion the other day from a guy wanting to uh, have Skybox on to talk about bankrolling and how to responsibly uh, responsibly wager. I think that's a good idea. We're all, we'll have that in the works. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Still got NASCAR rolling and some other stuff, some NBA as well as the playoffs getting here. So check them out. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. They're across from Kroger. Go see Greg. Best place in Mississippi to get meat. You know the deal by now. If you're a Rippy Ride subscriber, that's rippyrides.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me a couple times a week. Plus, 
discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. The weather's going to eventually consistently get warmer. Uh, I know we're kind of in that weird period now where it's hot, cold, hot, cold, but grilling season is right around the corner. Got games at Swayze, all kinds of great stuff, very different grilling occasions. You're going to want to go check out LB's for that. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. All kinds of different cuts, fresh sausage, fresh or seafood, I should say. Fresh seafood, all kinds of different delicious sausages. I like the filet burgers, always a nice touch, crab stuff, mushrooms. LB's is the best butcher shop in the world. You're going to want to go in there and find your own favorites. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. And then soon to have a second location there in the central Mississippi area with the Glugstat location opening sometime in April. I keep saying that like it's a couple months off, but uh, we're a month away from April. That's kind of how time works. So I will get a confirmation on what that uh, what that's looking like. We're going to have Greg on to do some March Madness stuff next week that I'm excited about. So check them out, LB's University Avenue. All right, let's get to Bracken Ray talking the end of the 2021-2022 Ole Miss basketball season, Kermit Davis's future, and a critical nine months for the program that Bracken really encapsulates going to happen in six to eight weeks. Here he is, Bracken Ray. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's Hoops correspondent, former Andy Kennedy staffer, Bracken Ray. Been a couple of weeks since we talked to you. Ole Miss's season mercifully came to an end the other night, uh, Wednesday night. We recorded this on a Thursday, 72-60 to 60 to Missouri, which uh, brings up uh, offseason kind of facing the program with a lot of questions. Not kind of, definitely facing the program with a lot of questions. Uh, I got to say, one of the reasons we hadn't done a pod in a couple of weeks was, one, this team's playing out the string. Two, as you probably well experienced being a staffer at Ole Miss, you know, once baseball starts, if you're not that competitive, it's uh, it kind of shows in the interest category. And three, it just became with an injury standpoint and kind of what this team was, not a ton to talk about. You've been on teams that have been good and bad. What's it like when a year ends where you played the uh, – this basically just played out the string the last three weeks? Like what does the end of that season feel like? You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's a little, it's a little different than probably you'd imagine because really we had three years of at least, you know, going into March having hope for the tournament. The first year we went that I was there in 14-15. The next year uh, we missed the NIT in, in, in whole, but I think we had won 20 games going into the postseason. So, you know, you feel like you could get a few there, you got a chance. And then – that NIT team, which I really liked that uh, team that went and beat Syracuse. It was, a, it was a fun team. Sebastian was was great to work with. But people forget, you know, that was a beat Arkansas in the SEC tournament and then beat Vandy and you're probably in. And um, yeah. that Arkansas, I think we lost by three, probably got fouled on the three at the end of the game. But the last year was, you know, our, our egregiously bad year. And we had known at 11, at 11 and 14 record in the year that we weren't all coming back. So to answer your question, once mid-February to March came, it's kind of like playing with house money a little bit, right? Like you, you, you just kind of – you can't sulk on it too much. You kind of have fun. You know, you enjoy, you enjoy the time doing what you're doing, enjoy the team dinners the night before the games. In my case, I, um, you know, I had to make sure that, if we went out to eat somewhere, there's going to be, you know, a little surf and turf rather than just chicken tenders, knowing that there really wasn't a whole lot to lose in that situation uh, on the on the corporate card. But, um, you know, 
Yeah, and you kind of play with house money a little bit in that situation. I'm not sure that that was the case with this group. And, you know, it, it appears that there won't be a head coaching uh, change this year. And that obviously wasn't, you know, the, the two situations between this year and 17, 18 are a little bit different, but a little bit in the same as well. What uh, we'll just get right into it. Uh, we t- we talked about this. We had texted about it before, and I think actually the last podcast we did, kind of I looking at what they had upcoming schedule wise. I don't remember what the exact date was, but you know there was a chance uh, that South Carolina lost. They lost at home on the buzzer beater. You know whatever you can make an argument they maybe shouldn't have been in that situation, uh, given where they were the last three minutes of the game. But they lost it, and then you kind of looked at the schedule and you're like, could they lose? nine in a row, 10 in a row to end the year if they don't beat Georgia. And credit to them for that, whatever that Saturday was at Georgia, you know, shorthanded, I believe they didn't have Joyner for that one either and had a pretty inspired effort. But they were a Georgia win away from losing 10 in a row to end this season. And Georgia had pretty much fired their coach from January on. I kind of chuckled at the reports today where it's like, God, they've officially parted ways with Tom Crane. It's like, buddy, they parted Tom parted ways with Tom Crane right after Christmas, it seemed like. But be that as it may, how do you view this? Because he is probably going to get another year. But, like, do you think if they had lost 10 in a row that you're forced to make a change? I know that's a simplistic way to look at it, but, man, losing 10 in a row doesn't happen often. Yeah, I mean, and it's all about momentum going into the next year as well and, like, what the perception is. Um, do I think that a change is made if they lose that Georgia game? I, I really don't because the, the, the injury card is, you know, what is kind of the Achilles heel from yeah. a perception standpoint, whether you're on that side or not. Um, it's the get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, at the end of the day – Kermit broke both publicly and privately has said that he thinks fully healthy if this team, or excuse me, if this team was fully healthy, they'd be a tournament team. And, you know, uh, to be transparent, I just, I can't buy that. Right. Um, And the reason for it is Robert Allen, look, he's a glue guy. He plays hard as hell, but he's a mid-major plus guy from a talent standpoint. Right. He's a, he's a mid-major guy maybe on the top end of the mid-majors when he's at Sanford. That's kind of what his stats showed as well. So you lose him, and then really you lose one guard the rest of the year. It's like half of Mar- – excuse me, half of Ruffin, half of Joyner. So, you know, some losses there from productivity, no doubt about it. Definitely win a few more games if they're back. But, but here's the, the piece that's real interesting, and I think it goes into next year as well. I don't know that – Ruffin, Morrell, and Joyner all on the floor at one time drastically improves your win-loss ratio. And there's some reasons for it. First off, those are three guys paired with Brakefield that is not a super great defensive lineup. Um, We talked all year about how good this team was defensively. And actually, if you look at the stats, it's probably not as good as you would think it would be. Now, some of that is – once you start losing or you're still playing as hard, who knows? But the other piece is Ruffin can create and score on his own. Morrell needs somebody to create for him. Joiner creates for just himself. So, like, the joiner Morrell combination, I don't know that would have been a super productive one. I think it's one of these, like, net neutral things where 
hey, maybe you st- take a step defensively backwards and take a step offensively forward. Do you win four games in the conference? No, you, you, I think you win a few more. But, I, you know, I still think that fully healthy, you're looking at this team as an NIT tournament team. You hit on a lot of fascinating parts of this there. And, like, we're, we'll start with the uh, Kermit harping on it public and privately that this team fully healthy is an NCAA tournament team. Because I remember you and I were texting. He, he kind of publicly – you know, there's been points throughout the year where he's publicly beat that drum. And he did that the night after the half-court shot against South Carolina where, look, he's in the heat of the moment. They lost a tough game on really, to be honest, just a complete kind of horse crap shot, whatever the case may be but if like he had time if there's such thing as kind of reading the room amongst you know your thousands of fans that aren't there per se that might not have been the greatest time to pull that card but he's done it a couple times this year and you you outlined it I don't have any disagreements by that at all where you just said I just can't necessarily buy that and so it's curious that he kind of beats that drum because you mentioned it too where Robert Allen good glue guy high major guy I think he's important for them from a rebounding and a defensive standpoint but he talks about it he had a quote the other night that I talked to Michael Borky right before you and I started recording and we went through some of this stuff and I put up a quote from one of the stories from last night he had a quote where he called it like the most uniquely challenging year he's had in 39 years in college basketball from the guys he's lost and look I don't know the full context of what that was said or like what the question was but he's talking about it as if this team was just totally decimated by injuries. And you put it very, very uh, succinctly and very well where you lost, um, you lost Allen, but you lost like a half a player or a full player with two guys. You lost basically half of Morrell and you lost half of Ruffin. And yes, are you going to struggle when you have, you don't have, you know, your best score or your second best score for half the year, you know, take Morrell out of the conversation just for a second, but one of your top two, three guys for pretty much the whole year. Sure, but Kermit is talking about it in a way to where, like, dudes like you and me managing are suiting up just to fill out practice. You know what I mean? There's a disconnect from how he's describing it versus what the reality is, don't you think? And let, and let, me, let me cut you off real quick. This brings up an interesting topic. If either Ruffin or Jarkel gets hurt completely for the whole season start to finish, but the other doesn't get hurt at all, yeah. does the narrative change from a perception standpoint? No, I don't think so. And do the results change that much? Do they maybe win one or one or two more games? Like, are they six and 12? Maybe, but that's a far from a certainty. I don't, do either one of them change? Well, well and my point to it's a little different. It's like if you have the quantity of people getting hurt starts right. this narrative of how many injuries we've had rather than – because you and I have talked about this before. Houston has had you know, one or two guys hurt. LSU has a guy named Adam Miller who I think would be top three in their rotation out the whole year. Bama, um, the, the guy from Texas Tech, out the whole year. Like, there are a lot of teams that are going to the tournament this year that have a top three or four guy in their rotation and didn't get to play this year. I say a lot, you know, a, a few at least. And so the thing there is, like, the perception is, hey, we got beat to hold injuries from a quantity standpoint. But what if just Joyner or just Ruffin – we're out the whole year. Does it look a little bit different from the, the from a PR standpoint? It's just an interesting, you know, point to bring up. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about it from that perspective as well. Like the, you're you're pro- you're probably right in that sense to where like having both of them out and not really having them on the floor at the same time. Like you, that's kind of I called it a get out of jail free card. That's probably not the right way to describe it. That's the 
legitimate enough excuse to kind of play into the argument of he deserves one more year. And we can get to that part in a second, but like them never really gelling together on the floor or having time together on the floor is probably the strongest part of his argument, right? Because you get Morel, you get Ruffin back. And as soon as he starts looking to like, you know, Hey, they really have something here. This kid's coming into his own, you lose him. And then Joyner comes back literally the next game. But the other part of that, which you hit on a, a few minutes, a couple of minutes ago was, I think I've been looking at this the wrong way because I've texted you a couple of times. We talked about it either on the pod or off the pod about like, Hey, could you make an argument if Joyner and uh, Ruffin were on the floor at the same time, you get Joyner off the ball. Does that work? And one of the things I've learned, I guess, from reading Neil over the last month as well, and you pointed it out too, is that might be the wrong way to look at it because I don't necessarily think Ruffin and Morell maybe, excuse me, Ruffin and Joyner fit together as well as maybe a Ruffin and a Morell. And so spinning that forward into next year, how do you kind of view that? Because the way I looked at it, and this was mostly before, you know, Morell really came on in the second half of this year and even kind of the last, I would say, second half to three quarters of SEC play. And so I guess at the time I was sitting there thinking, well, you get Joyner off the ball and you maybe turn him into a little bit more of a spot-up shooter. He only creates for himself. Maybe he has someone creating for him. But with the way Morell came on and a guy that's going to have real options to go elsewhere and is a real legitimate SEC player with a lot yeah. of talent, I think he's proved that. How do you view this trio? How does this work next year? Like from all three of their standpoints, like can it work with all three of them on the floor? Because you mentioned the defensive liability aspect of it too. I don't know. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a very interesting topic. Um, it, you know, can it work? Another piece is you're a little undersized, probably hurts you a little bit defensively as well. I'm not completely sold that, you know, Luis will be on this roster next year, but, you know, something that they've gotten out of the three spot um, the past two or three years is a rebounding three-man. So what you get in points, you give up in rebounding. Um, and, you know, it, it also kind of you – know, this is a guards league. We've talked about this a lot. I know, you know, if you hear Ole Miss fans have – pretty aggressive takes both positively and negatively about Mike White. And I'm not, I'm not going there, but what I'm saying is Mike knew, White this year, <laughs> Mike, Mike White this year, his issue was he didn't have guards. It's, it's that simple. He didn't have guards. Because Cass really was a terrific player and it didn't really matter. 100%. I mean, he can take over a game and it doesn't matter. But one thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, with this transfer portal, to be completely transparent, a lot of these low and mid-major kids, winning is not priority number one for them for while they're going to a school. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so with Ole Miss, you're 4-14 and in the league this year. Um, it, 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 the topic gets brought up like, hey, how are you going to recruit transfers, you know, to this team after finishing 13th in the league? And I think it's super valid. Uh, I think the counter-argument there, too, is there's other priorities that take place for transfers. But in this, we got our ass kicked with this, with the contract extension not getting rolled over in 17. For multi-year transfers, so not grad transfers, guys that have two years of eligibility or more, dirty recruiting, these opposing coaches are going to say, you're, that's not the guy you're playing for the rest of your tenure. You're going, you're going to play for him for one year, but that's not the guy you're going to play for for the rest of your tenure. So for, from a transfer piece, you have that. 
The second thing is I've said this before on this pod, and this is something that I'm, I'm, you know, pretty passionate about, or, you know, pretty opinionated, strongly opinionated, excuse me, strongly opinionated about Ole Miss basketball is far behind in the NIL game. These transfers are looking for different things than maybe you would um, as a high school recruit. As a high school recruit, you get recruited for three or four years. Mom's involved, all this stuff. These transfer guys are, um, you know, a little little older, a little more mature, but it's a little bit more of a transactional thing. I was talking to a – I was talking to a mid-major assistant um, probably in October, and he, he made a really funny point to me because it's true. He said, the thing that I love about the transfer portal is I get my, I get my heart broken in 10 days rather than four years. <laughs> right, because you're, <laughs> you're recruiting these kids as like eighth graders at this point, like you're nine, eighth, ninth graders, right? Like now it's a window of, hey, okay, this kid didn't work out, on to the next. Yeah. So that's the that's the second point with the transfer thing, portal thing for Ole Miss. And the third, and this good recruiters can navigate around this. Ole Miss is with Joyner, Morrell, and Ruff, and those are three you know talented guards that can get you double digit scoring. They all want to be volume guys. Is will there be? Could it be tough on the recruiting trail to sell a guard who wants to be a volume guy that he could be a volume guy when you have three volume guys there already? Now, internally, Ole Miss recruiting the kid, you probably can sell that. But it's another thing opposing coaches are like, hey, this rough and cap you know, needs his shots. Joyner needs a shot. Morrell needs his shots. Um, so, so, you know, that's another thing. And that may be the smallest of three. But those are some obstacles that, Ole Miss is going to have to overcome um, as they build this roster back because they got four high school kids coming in. You only got one graduating. There's going to be serious attrition. So there's a lot, you know, there's going to be a lot of turnover. And, um, you know, I had somebody text me that said, anyway, I think it was you actually said it's about to be a very interesting next nine months. And I disagree. I think it's going to be a very interesting six to eight weeks. And it's going to be kind of a yawner for, for for a little bit after that fair enough there too right because i guess largely what they do like you mentioned in the next six to eight weeks is like you know i guess there's some gray area to where you could maybe think they've done enough and you want to wait and see but i think you're right largely they're going to figure out you know what did they do with this roster and is this next year just going to be a formality of confirming what you already know the the roster building side of it you could we could go in so many directions with this right and we talked a little bit about kind of how you figure out the three guard aspect of it there I think you bring up a really interesting point with the dirty recruiting from one being behind from an NIL standpoint two with transfers I never thought about it that way and it's somewhat this way in football even though football's even more just football's more team oriented by nature but like a guy like I mean, this is a hot topic right now, but whatever. Just using an example, Ashim Young. <laughs> That's a guy where, hey, I want to go play in this system and get utilized like this. And, of course, I want to win, but, like, I get me to the league type of thing. And I imagine right. with these low to mid-major kids, they're – you mentioned not all of them. Like, not all of them in the sense that winning's not a high priority. But when you've played well enough at whatever mid or low major school you're at, the only natural inclination inclination for getting an opportunity at an SEC program is, 
hey, can I do this at this level individually? And like, can I be featured and can I be a contributor instead of, hey, I'd like to win 30 games and go to the tournament. You know what I mean? Like, like that makes sense from like a priority standpoint. As far as actually trying to reshape this thing, it seems like they – maybe I'm being too rash here, but whatever, that's kind of my job sometimes, and you're kind of supposed to be the level-headed one here. It seems like they would be better off with kind of like, hey, we have two guards to build around, and then we're going to build the roster like that, and it seems like they have three. I'm not – I guess I'll just go there. Is there any world where Darkel Joyner is elsewhere next year and they just go with this whole Ruffin Morell thing? Like, is, is, do you view it as a musical chairs, two seats with three people type of thing? Here's my field on it. I'll go all three of them for you. Okay. I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked if Ruffin leaves. I'd be a little surprised if Jarkel leaves. I think some people are more confident than I on Morrell being back on this roster. Not saying he won't be, but I think, you know, he, he had a pretty strong comment in the press conference yesterday about, well, you know, shock the world, all that kind of stuff. But he's a guy that, could probably benefit from being in a different offense that not only would he win more games, but he would improve his value from either be playing in a, a really good level overseas or maybe if he thinks he's an NBA player as well. Um, so, that you know, that's kind of what I think. I, I think I'd be shocked with Ruffin. I think he really likes the staff. Jarkel, I'd be a little surprised. The senior day thing was a little weird and unexpected on my end, you know, on my end. Um, I mean, I'd still be a little surprised if he left, and Morrell either way wouldn't surprise me. And he's the guy with the most options, right? And I remember distinctly, I was reading uh, one of Neil's columns over the last couple of weeks talking about how good Jarkel, excuse me, not Jarkel, Matthew Morrell has been. And it was interesting. We I don't remember when we did this, but on one of these pods, you remember when we went through and went like, hey, what other SEC team would take someone off old Mrs. Roster? And we had trouble. Yeah. Like outline, I think this we did this in December when they were struggling in the non-conference. Well, if we did that argument today with the what Morell has turned into as a player, outside of maybe one or two exceptions, isn't every team taking him at this point? Almost every. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, he he could get. You know, you're really good. Um, you know, any P five conference and you know, and a lot of blue bloods as well. Um, because if you look at it like the the way these rosters are built now, it's not like. Like, look at North Carolina, for example. They'll have two or three five-stars on their team next year. It's not one through eight anymore. And so now, like, uh, Morrell, who is two years into playing P5 basketball, has really turned it on. Um, you know, that like that that's the kind of school that may like Morrell. I have no idea if North Carolina <laughs> likes Matthew Morrell or not. But just for example's sake. Sure. And so that's what's fascinating about this. And so – as you just kind of put – you didn't exactly put a percentage on it, but you went and outlined, okay, I'll be surprised if he's back a little bit, not at all. You put those odds together. Uh, I've lost my fair share of parlays over the year when you have to have three legs of it and three guys come back. It sounds like that if you just kind of do it from strictly an odd standpoint, the odds of all three being back are not – what do you put, not great? Like, what do you put the odds at to just drive a, paint you into a corner here? What do you put the odds at that all three of them are back next year? Is it less than 50 or more than 50%? See, my guess was going to be 50. So, um, because, like I said, I feel – I kind of feel Morell is like a 50-50 guy. And then Ruffin, I think, is going to be back. And Jarkel, I think, is going to be back. But it wouldn't 
it'd be a little surprising, but wouldn't shock me. So then it's kind of the morale card of, you know, 50-50. But to your point, that staff probably prioritizes him more than, you know, or definitely prioritizes him more than Joyner, um, especially you got one year left, or two years left. He's pretty efficient towards the end, has a, you know, pro career, all that stuff. So who knows? One last point about the transfer portal thing to, to kind of back it up and then that point too. This is, this is something that's real interesting to me. Um, so, like, Musselman at Arkansas, he did that whole transfer deal at Nevada. He's established, and now he can show game film, has all these examples of transfers that have worked out. For Ole Miss, you can actually do that at the big spot because of Romello White and Noss, right? They, they, those were two hits. Those were two good gets. I don't know that there's a ton of film on the guard spot over four years that you can show. Um, so that's, that's something that'll be really interesting because something that happens in recruiting a lot, it's like, okay, if you, if you miss and don't do well on the transfer portal a few times in a row, it can really burn you the next time. Another example of that, and this is a real thing in both Jackson and Memphis, if Ruffin doesn't work out at Ole Miss, Ole Miss is going to have a real hard time getting Jackson guys going forward. Same thing with guys out of Memphis. If it doesn't work out, you kind of, like with the AAU coaches and all that stuff, if it doesn't work out, it hurts you the next two or three guys. I don't know if it's, you know, there's more people related to the city situations and the transfer portals, but I wonder if there is something to that. And if you evaluated it, I think you evaluate it and say, Ole Miss has done a really solid job at the big spot. Oh, what do we, what does it look like in over four years at that guard spot though? There's more time to figure out how all three of it works out. But the last thing I'll leave you with, and this is just me throwing out a basic observation, is there any shot at all if they work out all three back and they build out the roster okay around them? Is there any way you convince a guy like a Jarkel Joiner to come off the bench? That's a really good question. Um, you know. I I really think I know I don't think I know Jarkel's a great locker room guy, sure. and I do think being Oxford State of Mississippi Ole Miss is important to him. So if you had a if you had a guy on the roster that could take a step back, a role step back, um, that wouldn't shock me. Um, but that that's an interesting point. I don't know. That, that's something I haven't thought about. As far as it pertains to Kermit Davis. And allowing another year, as much as context is whatever 280 characters on Twitter times two is, I put out two tweets last night as I was eating crawfish and not watching the game. Him getting another year, uh, I would argue from his approval rating standpoint, pretty low. Um, so people were upset about that. But it's one of those things, and I've talked about this for whatever reason, Colin and I on the baseball pod, like start talking about hoops and like for the first 10 minutes. And we've always just gotten to the point where it's like, okay, if he's back next year, eh, if he's not, Okay, I can see it both ways. And I still kind of lean in that category. I think as we've talked about this now and it gets a little closer and the season's over, he's probably getting a next year. Do you – I don't want to say do you agree, disagree with the decision, but I have this theory that it if it is – if he's given another year, which I think he will be, I think the two, one of the two biggest factors at play is, is two, his one is track record as a coach, even beyond Ole Miss. Like, look, this guy's won a lot of, like, pretty consistently over a 30 something year career and 20 some odd years as a head coach. 
And then two, do you put any stock to the fact, I guess to package it into actual question, do you put any stock into the fact that there's going to be a ton of openings in SEC basketball this year? And if you're kind of on the fence about whether your job wants to open or not, if you're Keith Carter, as frustrated as you may be, to just be like, okay, look, this guy's been a pretty good winner for the most part of his career. Let's give him one more year to fix it, and hopefully next year you don't have, you know, six openings or five openings and you maybe have two instead. Do you put any stock into that thinking at all? Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely something that's crossed my mind a little bit. But this, the guy, if, if that's your philosophy, wouldn't the guy that's out there next year still be out there this year? Now, what we're saying, what we're saying is, like, if you know the top three guys on your list are going to go to Georgia, South Carolina, and Missouri, all right, sure. whatever we call it. Well, isn't the number four guy going to be the number one guy next year? So now you're Fair. competing, you know, you're competing with other P5s next year, all that stuff. Um, you know, on the – job security with permit thing here's here's where i'm at with it um the concerning part to me and i'm sure if you went on you know the message boards or something like that it would it, it would go against this point the concerning part to me is the lack of emotion pro or anti-kermit and i know that sounds crazy and you know we're very involved in all this you know athletics i mean we think about it a lot so I'm, we have, you know, our friends and people that we know are probably fairly aggressive and I either really like them or really don't. But the overall sense of the fan base, there's not just a ton of that. And I, where, where I get a little concerned with this program going forward, I don't think this program can afford apathy. Um, I think apathy, this is a bottom four job in the league, you know, Ole Miss has had whatever it is, nine or so NCAA tournament appearances. You've got great facilities and all that stuff. NIL, I think, is going to hurt more than it helps us. And I think from a fan base standpoint, over the last 10 years, I've really been impressed with student turnouts, student turnout and attendance, really probably since Marshall got here. I think it's been really, really good. And what I worry about next year is, are you going to – do you, could you lose people? Um, I, I think, honestly, tell me if you disagree, but I think Ole Miss football lost some people during the Matt Luke era. It took Elaine Kiffin to get them back. These are completely different situations. But if you have another 4-14 and 14 next year, do you lose some people and not get them back? And th that, that's where I'm a little, um, you know, that, that's where I'm a little concerned with this program going forward. I think this program for three years has had one assistant that can get shit done and he has gotten shit done and there are people that go after this whole staff and say hey we need to clean house fire every single assistant if you're uh, you know that if that was supposed to be done you do that last year but the frustrating thing for me and i think it's a lack of education levi who i you know he's the one that i that can get shit done this is a guy that people are talking about wanting to fire, that there is one or two key five SEC assistants that's names are involved in other head coaching jobs right now 
that if they left their SEC job, Levi would probably be on the short list for these jobs. And these are teams that are going to the NCAA tournament. So you're talking about wanting to fire the whole staff when you have a guy on staff that could get a promotion, he could get a raise, he could go to a more historic basketball program, all that stuff. So, you know, you've got one guy that can really get it done, but you don't have a full staff of guys that can get it done. And, you know, that's a Kermit thing. You're the CEO of the program. But in my opinion, I've always been big on this assistant thing. I don't think Ole Miss basketball has ever had three solid assistants at one time uh, on a staff. The vast majority of that in the past has been an infrastructure thing. Um, but now, you know, you have 900000 to a million dollars to play with with the assistant staff. I think that's been Kermit's biggest miss so far. Is beyond Levi's what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying – I'm yeah. saying, Le- uh, no, Levi, Levi's worth his weight. Some people will say no, that. Yeah, for okay. sure. But you're saying filling right. out the staff beyond him and filling it out with solid assistance is three versus one because your Levi point is well stated because we went through this in a very much different context with Borky a second ago. There's pretty much – I mean, look, Ruffin I think finished at 52 in the 247 um, composite and whatever you think of Breakfield. But there were three top 50 kids on the floor when fully healthy this year. When's the last time Ole said that? Right. And how involved was Levi? I mean, you would know better than I am in at least two of the three, probably all three to some degree. Yeah, and th- there's a little bit on the Morell and Ruffin thing. I think that it was – there was kind of a joint job done with some of those guys. Um, but he's gotten you a big, and I think he's lost out on – this could be said for a lot of assistants, right? So I get that. But I think he's lost out on some top 50 kids that – he was not the reason why he lost out for them. Ole Miss infrastructure was the reason for that. And so, you know, this group, I, I think that's the big deal. And the thing that I always talk about, you know, I'll, I talked to Andy a week or two ago on the phone, and I'm trying to get down to the final four to go see a lot of my guys that I worked with three or four years ago. But the thing that I respect the most about coaches is how loyal they are to their circle. But at the same time, I think it's the biggest double-edged sword yeah. because, because for some of these guys, I mean, coming from middle, n- none of these guys have ever recruited high major players before. And so, you know, the other two, in my opinion, like they recruited at middle. And if you look at the roster, you've got a lot of mid-major dudes on your roster. Which you have been on from – December on and really from the start of this season like and it showed right that's the big great injury crux of this right where there's the disconnect from what we're talking about versus Kermit acting like they don't have enough dudes to get through a practice it's actually just exposing his depth and evals is it not 100 percent 100 percent and you know like it's a, there's a lot of mid-major guys but there's also a guy on the roster and a guy that was committed um at one point in this year that I think are low major and maybe even D2 from a talent standpoint. Oof. So, you know, that, th- those are really big misses. You can have some – you can afford a Robert Allen miss every now and then, which is like it's this kind of miss because he's really a mid-major, mid-major plus guy. If he's eight or nine on your bench and plays hard as hell, all right, that's one thing. But you can't have the guys on your roster that are low major guys that are – doing absolutely nothing for you 
Yep, it's uh, very well stated. And I think that's as you go into this offseason, that's what's going to have to change. And like simply put, as I kind of said last night on, on the worldwide Twitter webs, was he's going to have to prove, and I say he, I, I guess when I met Kermit Davis, it's, you know, he's the guy that answers for all this, but it's really collectively the staff that you just, you just underscored and kind of painted a picture that's way better than I could have about like kind of the dynamics of how these assistants recruits and how it's kind of one and a couple, the two others are lagging behind of, they're going to have to prove that it's like to do something they have yet to do yet. And that's fill out the roster beyond the top kid. And so like I wrote about this in a newsletter that by the time people listen to this podcast will hopefully already be published. But as I, we sit here recording it, I have not yet was I wrote about like Kermit, you know, he has the top 50 kids. Like he zeroed in on a, like a top target each year and they've gotten it for the most part. It's the way they filled out everything else and the way I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the kind of the way you've, described it as hey that's the Levi guy and the rest of the way they built out the roster has not been great and I know it's not that simply put but like that's generally there's a parallel between how the roster like the recruiting classes have been year by year and the assistant coach dynamic that you just outlined is there not say that, say that part one more time so like they've they've had a roughing and they've had a morale yeah. and I guess Breakfield was a transfer but they've had like a major piece pretty much each of these recruiting classes and their issue has been filling out the roster, whether it's the portal or high school kids beyond that piece, whether it's a morel, whether it's a uh, rough and whatever. And like, I'm not, it's, it's not as simple as this, but the way you just kind of outline the Levi dynamic versus the other assistants is there's kind of some parallels to be drawn from each class. And like, they've gotten one piece, but the rest of the, like the rest of the pieces they've added have kind of stunk each year beyond kind of the one centerpiece of it. There seems like there's parallels to be drawn between that and how you're describing the way the assistant coaches recruit, if that makes any sense. 100%. Like six, you know, and we could even call it maybe five through eight. Five through eight on your roster is yeah. a lot. It's a lot of mid-major dudes. It's a lot of mid-major dudes. But the other point here, too, is you did, did we not – if you would have told us what Morell was doing the first year and a half into his tenure – not what you probably thought it would be at that point, right? And this is not – Morell obviously is a hit. Like, we, yeah. we need him back. But it, that took a lot longer. If you had sh- sh- said, hey, here's what five-star Breakfield's going to do, year one at Ole Miss. All right, Breakfield's still got a lot of time to play. He can shoot it from three. He does some nice things. Don't think – you know, I think athleticism is going to bite him in the ass in this league, but I do still think he's got a future. But Morell, or excuse me, Breakfield, not a miss, but a miss in the terms of what you thought he was going to get you. So you have five through eight that is detrimental, but your one through four really outside of um, – I mean, your, your one through four, Morrell gave it to you later than you thought. Outside of the Breakfield, Breakfield, and then the three that gave you probably what you thought is something, if not more. Nas Brooks, if not more. And then we all kind of came into the year thinking Jark Hell was going to be a 13 to 15 a game guy. You know, so he, he kind of gave you what you were supposed to. So out of the whole roster, those are three dudes who met or exceeded your expectations for the, for the whole year, like at a consistent scope. Obviously, Matthew Morrell was more than worthy of the scholarship. What I'm, what I'm saying is it took him a little bit longer yeah, to get for sure. there you know, to get there when, when, when need be. But to your point, yeah, five through eight. I mean, it's depth. It, it, it's, not, it's not bringing in a transfer shooter year two in a row. 
I mean, it's, it, it, that's nonsensical, um, not being able to get that done. One of the kind of last things I had for you before we get out of here is you've worked on what, what this staff is going to currently face and what this program is going to currently face over the next nine months as they wait into next season. You've experienced that. It's not the same thing, as you said earlier, because, you know, you didn't <laughs> – the uh, you know, as far as I know, unless Glenn Boyce has gotten some some strings starting to be pulled behind the behind the scenes that I don't know about, you guys had a clown of a chancellor, uh, pretty much just kneecap you going into that last year. I mean, call a spade a spade here. I think a PowerPoint from you know someone Dallas based helped, but whatever the case may be, it's not a perfect parallel. But they're facing a rubber meets the road year where you either make the tournament or you have some weird circumstance where you look damn good trying and maybe it's not quite there, but pretty much it seems like tournament or bust. You've been on a staff that's like that. How did like in just in take this any direction you want. How different is entering a year like that where you all know the consequences and you know, you know, Hey, if this doesn't go well, you know, I'll send you a Christmas card, but we're not going to be in the same place next year. How different is that preparing from off season to end season when you know the stakes? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was something that we talked about a little bit um, with the whole contract, you know, extension, not being rolled over and that kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe, maybe I or AK or whoever on the staff was as crazy at the time as, you know, Kermit thinking they were a tournament team this year or whatever the case may be. But, like, we we liked that team a lot going into it. We had five really good guards. And I knew going into that season, I was like, damn, we, we uh, to Kermit's point on missing on a shooter the previous two years, we didn't get a four-man. Like, we had Mark Amos Hyman and Eustace, or as my friends like to call them, useless. Um, we had, we had those hard. two. Yeah. We, we had those two um, going into the year. So I, I knew we had a big gap there. Um, but we kind of ended the year before with some momentum. Yeah. You, you play in front of one of the best crowds I've ever seen at an Ole Miss basketball game, Georgia Tech. You lose that one. The game before that was Syracuse. This Terrence Davis guy comes out of nowhere, is, you know, that his sophomore year and looks like a guy that could – could be drafted at some point. Brian Tyree turns it on. Like you had a little bit more momentum, so I kind of think it's a little bit of a different situation. We we ended up finishing twelve and twenty, right? I, I will always say that team was more talented than their record. We, as a staff, kind of lost them mentally, and you know, twelve years of the place is a it is a long time. But there was a little bit more momentum going in. So from an office vibe standpoint. Um, during the season after a loss, yeah, maybe it was it was a little tighter because you know what could be happening at the end of the year, and definitely after going seven and five and nine conference, you know things got tough with three but, overtime losses, right? I just wondered if there was a, like a point during that where AK was like, "Would anybody like to go have a cigarette?" Yeah, <laughs> three overtime losses. Um, but we went into that year like kind of with a with a good vibe, you know. Schuler is our first one of our only top one hundred kids. We really liked what he could do, and so. I think it's two completely different situations because of how the year before ended with what kind of the locker room and office looks like. If you go get five or six transfers, okay, maybe that's your momentum. And this group has got four high school kids signed right now. They've got one person graduating. They're going to have to sign three, four, if not more, uh, transfers to fix the roster. That's a lot of turnover. 
And it's a lot of pieces to put in place. Like when you have that much turnover, and I know that's the nature of the beast of college basketball, but isn't there an element of this too? They could kind of win win the offseason is a stupid way to put it. They could get the pieces in place and where they land, you know, a couple of guys in the transfer portal that you're kind of high on. But that's another part of this is there's no guarantee it all ends up gelling. Because, I mean, how many teams do you see that with in this modern age of college basketball now is, hey, they got four or five pieces you like. Maybe most of them or a lot of them were gotten through the transfer portal and it just never gelled. Like there's also yeah. just kind of the, the, you know, I know Ken Palm measures luck and Ole Miss was one of the worst teams in the NCAA and quote unquote luck this year, however you want to quantify that. But there's a luck element to you get the pieces there. It has to fit too. And that's a personality thing. That's a luck thing. There's a lot of variables that go in beyond just getting, you know, the guys to campus and changing your philosophy and kind of hitting on evals too, which makes this even more of an uphill climb. It's doable. Yeah. Man, it's going to be hard. I mean, that's – well. Yeah, yeah and, and, and to yeah, to your point too, like the, the piece you're talking about evals and stuff like that, like what what I always laugh at with coaches is when they say a kid's a high major, mid major, low major. It's like if you took a list of every single player in college basketball, they'd probably only have like eighty kids as high major, right? Like they're very strict on that category. But to that point, when you're looking at a lower mid major guy that's averaging twelve or thirteen a game, maybe there's a reason he's a lower mid major guy. Maybe there's things that don't translate over to the next level to where this guy ends up being ninth or tenth on your bench. That goes to your evaluation point. But that is the risk with the transfer portal. Um, I don't, you know, getting a lot of P5 transfers, I don't know that that's realistic with the state of the program right now. But getting going and getting a low and mid-major guy, the gamble there is, is it going to translate? Is the speed, the size, the athleticism of the SEC going to translate? It's going to be a fascinating couple of weeks here as Ole Miss tries to shape up this roster next year. Um, before I let you get out of here, a couple other topics we got to hit. Uh, what the hell is State going to do? I mean, I know they won tonight. They had a good performance. But Allen's a dead man walking. How do you view that job that someone that's worked in the industry? Because, you know, when we were kids, Ole Miss didn't really have much of a basketball tradition. And the end of the Stansbury years, or I'd say the height, the height of the Stansbury yeah. years, as a kid, I was kind of jealous. I was like, State has this thing before yeah. baseball to where, like, this is kind of rocking. And, man, ever since he left, it's been it's been rough. And that job's going to open up. And, you know, it's not a great job, but it's a little it's a little better than Ole Miss's. How do you view that, and what direction do you think they go? Well, you know, privately to you for half a decade now, I've been pretty um, pretty vocal with yes. what I think about Ben Howland. Um, Vindicated and, uh, and then some. Yes. Um you know, I, I think that Mississippi State is Ole Miss with more resources, so to speak, but with less facilities. And Cohen, here's the issue with the Mississippi State job. A, they're trying to renovate their arena. And look, I, you know, we've got a great arena, but there's not a lot of kids that are coming to a place just because of the facility. But they're you telling me some of those kids that are transferring aren't like, damn, that scoreboard is sick. I'm in. Well, dude, I mean, or what about the Raisin fans? Come on now. Um, it's never open, but I digress. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many post-game meals we have Raisin fans in the thing. And, and I miss it like crazy now because they don't have it up here. But the deal with State is they, they, there's kind of two things. A, the facilities is not a huge deal. But their facilities, they're upgrading their facilities and putting like 30 to $40 million into it, which doesn't move the needle at all. So they're going to stay a bottom pack team from a facility standpoint going forward. B, 
I would be scared shitless if I was a fan and John Cohen was running my men's basketball search. That's their big problem right there is he, uh, that, that, that really, that really would scare me. Um, I don't think he knows what he's doing outside of the sport of baseball. So there's a few names, um, you know, a lot, you know, a few, three or four mid-major up-and-comers and, you know, that, that I think could do pretty well at, the, at this level. South Carolina and State are kind of a similar job, so I wonder if they'll kind of fight for some people. And then Georgia's kind of a, a, a little bit above both of those. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Cohen running a job search is going to be interesting. But they got some people, they got some power players now that really care about men's basketball now in Starville. Which is a little bit of the difference maker beyond the resources part. They actually kind of have some people that I would take care about it and more of them at a higher level than Ole Miss does. It's uh, it's going to be fascinating. Do you think this is it? Do you think we've seen the last of Ben Howland or do you think he collects like maybe a mid-major check for a bit? Because So I think he, he seems like a nice man, and I don't think he's totally incompetent. I think what happened – you know, and you know this better than all, hell of a lot better than I did. But I think he was a dude that spent a couple years out of coaching and thought he could do the same thing he did in, you know, like 08. And it's actually like, hey, this doesn't work. Oh, and our league's gotten better. But I don't think he's totally incompetent. Do you think this is the last we've seen from him in college basketball? So I could see him going both ways. If I had to put money on it, I've heard the retirement talks enough for the last, you know, two or three years now that what I would bet on is him. Um, you know, moving back to California and retiring. And I don't think he's got a good enough personality to do TV. So this may be the, this may be the it for him. Oh, fair enough. So am, am I misguided in that? He seems like a, he seems like a good dude. I don't know why, like, I don't know him personally, but there's been a couple of times where I've sat in, in a press conference on him where he seems like a nice man. I don't know why like that matters or whatever, but I just like, God, that guy gets shit on so much. I watched one of his press conferences recently, and I was like, this is like a nice, like, grandpa-looking guy that clearly is in over his head a bit. Yeah, I think I think he's got a little calmer over the years, too, which has helped that. But, um, you know, most coaches that I talk to um, ha- have respect for him. I think he was a little more fiery and a little bit more of an asshole when he was younger as well. But he, he seems to have mellowed. I, I think he's been pretty classy and – you know, his time at Mississippi State, he, um, you know, the year after AK got fired, he would have AK come talk to his team a lot. And I thought, I think that's, I thought that always thought that was really cool. Like this old, you know, in-state rival and he's got, he respected AK enough to have him come talk to his team when AK was on TV. So. Last thing, and we'll probably get you to do something for us next week as far as this March Madness getting going, but is there anything that's changed for you in the last couple of weeks about who you think can win this whole thing? You know, like I'm starting to, um, I'm starting to get a little higher on the, the Kentucky train. Uh, I really am, and a lot of people make the comment with Auburn that, like, are there can their guards get it done? They have good guards, but are their guards good enough to get it done? But this Jabari Smith uh, shot 44 percent from the three point line this year, and what Walker Kessler does is unbelievable, even outside of the stat sheet. So. Um, you know, Kentucky's one I like, you know, in the NCAA tournament, I know they're playing right now. Um, I'm, I'm not as high on Bama as I have been throughout this whole season. And they um, just lost they, as we record this to Vanderbilt, just to add some. Okay, they did, they did lose. Okay, I've told you all year I don't like their bigs, and I still stand with that. But from an efficiency standpoint, their guards aren't great either. They don't shoot very well. They shoot a ton of threes, but not at a great percentage. 
Uh, Nate's had to challenge them defensively all year. So I, I think they're a team that uh, could get upset early in the tournament this year. Interesting. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. We'll, uh, we'll hit some NCAA tournament uh, stuff next week for sure. But, dude, I appreciate the time as always, and we will, uh, we'll talk to you again soon as uh, this interesting offseason for Ole Miss kind of gets underway. Appreciate it, my man. All right. See ya. All right, that was Bracken Ray. Hope you enjoyed that part of our conversation and kind of putting a book on the 2021-2022 Ole Miss basketball season. Going to be an interesting few uh, few months coming up for Kermit Davis and Ole Miss because that was really an unwatchable product for most of the year. Don't think we need to mince words about that. All right, let's get to Michael Borky to close out the podcast. Started with some hoops talk, but we also hit State and Ben Halland and uh, then dove into some baseball and some NFL as well. So good conversation there. Appreciate Borky's time. Always enjoy chopping it up with him. Here he is, Mike, Super Talk's Michael Borky. All right, we now welcome on Super Talk Do It All, man, Michael Borky, Sports Talk Mississippi, three to six every uh, Monday through Friday, that is. And then the YouTube show in the mornings. We, uh, I think I said this exact same thing the last time, but like this is like the perfect time for you to come on because we just have like a just a hodgepodge of random topics to get to. And I couldn't think of anyone better to bounce around from NBA to college baseball to college football and anywhere in between. What's up, man? Oh, not a whole lot. Just uh, answering a lot of questions about a coaching search. It's never going to happen on one side. And uh, and on the other, it feels like it's going to happen. It does uh, with Ben Hallen, but hey, he wore a suit today and, and beat South Carolina, so you never know. Oh, he did the suit, and he... he... He switched it up. I said on the show today, and I kind of feel bad for it because he seems like a nice guy, um, but when it was brought to my attention, I said, yeah, well, you dress nice at a funeral. I wonder if there was some reverse psychology. I was actually about to go there, too. Do you think he tried to psych himself out? Like, hey, this is it for me. Let's go to a funeral. You know, if he, if he rolls up tomorrow in the same suit to where he only one, brought one suit to the city, then I'll really respect it because they did beat the hell out of Carolina tonight, didn't they? They did. They actually made three-point shots, which is something that they've, they've struggled to do. But, yeah, anyway, um, that, that's going to happen, at least it feels like. So that's really been what's going on in, in my world. It's why does State suck at baseball? Uh, is Ole Miss going to win the national championship? Why isn't Kermit Davis fired yet? Who's replacing Ben Howland? That's my world lately. Aside from, you know, having a wife and a child and stuff like that. But – Otherwise, that's been it for me. The uh, And, you know, I, I, I feel like I brought this up like four times throughout the pods we've done throughout the last year, but that's a hell of a lot better than trying to figure out if we're going to do the Jordan Doc or Tiger King uh, over, the, over the course of about a month and a half there. I will never be ungrateful for content ever again, no matter how stupid it may seem. That is one, like, hill, I don't even know if die on a, the hill is the right phrase, but that is one, like, level I will not stoop to anymore. I will not crap on midweek baseball content. I will not do anything after living through that. Yeah, no doubt. I, I did see a preview for a show about Tiger King. So it's not like another documentary. It's like they have actors that are playing – and, like, kind of famous actors. Hold on, I need to pull this thing up. Because I don't think that a single person asked for more Tiger King, and yet they're getting it. So, you know he's locked up out by me. He's in a Fort Worth um, prison. And on one of Donald Trump's last days in office, I believe the story went that Mr. Tiger King, I don't even actually remember that guy's name, 
thought he was going to get a pardon and actually had a limo parked outside the prison to come pick him up. And my man is still there to this day. He did not get a pardon. So I don't know who footed the bill for that limo, but that's, that driver had an easy day. <laughs> so it's a real show. It's going to be um, Kate McKinnon is that really awkward person, a uh, girl on Saturday Night Live. She does those cell phone commercials. Yeah. She's playing Carol Baskin. Um, I don't know who John Cameron Mitchell is, but he's going to be Joe Exotic. Uh, you've got, um, what's his last name? Fitchner, William Fitchner. He's, uh, if you Googled him, you'd recognize him. Uh, he's in a bunch of random stuff. I'm, yeah, I'm the worst person to ask, like, actors-wise. Like, it honestly, like, it, it pisses MC off very badly when, like, apparently very big-time actors. I'm like, well, who is that? What is he in? Well, see, so, I, I'm not good at the pop culture thing either. But here, let me tell you what. The, it, regardless, that is still being made. Like, I, I thought people realized, you know, the only reason why Tiger King was popular in March of 2020 is because everybody was locked inside of their homes with nothing else to do. And it was a good like numbing of reality despite the guy being a massive piece of shit and justifiably locked up in prison for a very long time. Yeah. Cause it's, I, I remember when we were talking about it, we got to the end cause I remember it started out entertaining. I got to the end and I was like, I'm actually not even sure I enjoyed that. I, I think I'm, I'm not mad. I watched it, but I, I, can't, I, don't, I don't know if I can Dude, honestly say I enjoyed that. I hated it. I mean, it was just glory. This is kind of how my, I'm, I'm such a stick in the mud sometimes. I was like, this is glorifying animal abuse is what this is. And you've got people dressing up like that dude on Halloween. It's like he's an animal abuser and hired somebody to kill somebody else. This is not someone that we should be celebrating. Anyway, that actor was an Armageddon in Black Hawk Down. Okay. Uh, you would recognize him if you saw his face. But, yeah, he's going to be on a freaking Tiger King show. So in case, like, COVID comes back up, which, according to C.J. McCollum, it still exists because he's going to miss games now. Uh, you know, you can fire up some Tiger King content. There you go. I'm I'm pumped about that. Uh, if we if we ever do have a global pandemic, I'm glad we are uh, covered. I'm hoping we don't have another global pandemic though. And on top, the last thought of the Tiger King, you're right. Like if that if we had not been in the middle of a pandemic, that documentary is something that you text your buddy about when maybe you don't want to be uh, open the advertising that you and your significant other took some edibles and stumbled upon it on Netflix. But like. maybe you should watch it if you're feeling weird I don't think it gets much coverage after that but I was about to try to think of a tease on the fly I can't even think of a tease let's start with basketball because you mentioned the two coaching searches it's podcasting you don't need teasers yeah everybody's already here transition I've got I've I've tried to perfect like the morning get up transition to where it's just outlandish if you actually like wrote it down on paper but it somehow plays because it's Mike Greenberg but heading into basketball, you're right. There's one search that's probably going to happen. And as we sit right now, barring some particular, uh, some particularly, I would say, surprising news, there's one that isn't going to happen. And it has one, uh, has some people, I would say, upset about it. Because as, I, uh, as we sit here on Thursday night, I started writing a newsletter for Friday earlier this afternoon. I, of course, led with basketball. Ole Miss's basketball season mercifully came to an end by losing to a Mizzou team who is going to fire their coach for a third time on Wednesday night. Not great. I think a quarter of Mizzou's wins are against Ole Miss this year. I believe they won 12 games, and three of them are against the Mighty Rebels. That's not a great ratio. And they won five SEC games, two of which were against Ole Miss. 
So. Yeah. So, and the reason I know that is from the anger. I tweeted about it last night to kind of like what needed to happen going forward and as much context as you could offer in, you know, two 280 character tweets on Twitter. And the reason I knew that Mizzou stat, which is, I mean, I could have figured it out, I guess, if I looked at Mizzou's record, but someone responded who was not happy about the fact that Kermit Davis is returning. And that's probably as good a place as any to start the conversation. Look, last night, over the last two weeks, they were just playing out the string. There's nothing that happened to, to them, against them, for them, whatever, really since – trying to think of a place to go. Probably that overtime loss at Florida right after they lost Ruffin. Like, there was really nothing that could have happened that would have made any difference. They were essentially playing out the string. There was not going to be any postseason. Just last night kind of signified – one, one chapter closing and another fairly ominous-looking chapter opening, but it was kind of no longer, I guess, jumping the shark to start talking about next year. How Kermit Davis talked about it pretty much his entire press conference. And that's where this lies, because this has to get better. And I'm curious, like, your take on this part of it, because there's so many elements to this, from the fans not showing up to me, who's somewhat halfway paid to cover this. Their last two tip-offs, I've forgotten the tip-off time and have looked up to see what the tip-off time was in the middle of the game and I'm supposed to be watching. And so like, there's a lack of interest. The product's tough to watch, but then there's like pieces there to fix it. If someone else doesn't come and steal them, it's a very perplexing and interesting um, like situation. And I'm curious where you stand because I'm kind of on the fence. Like if someone wants to be like, he should definitely be fired. I don't know how you bring him back. I'd be like, Oh, okay. And then if you're like, no, give him a chance to fix it. I'd also be like, okay. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we it's not scientific, but uh, ran a poll yesterday for Ole Miss fans. What game are you more interested in? The baseball game against Alcorn State or your game in the SEC tournament against Missouri in basketball? And it was like 75-25 Alcorn State baseball. Yeah. I know it's a unique dynamic around the state, baseball being as important as it is, but still it should never be like that. And, and it was. Um, my thing is, I hate a couple of things that come with this. Uh, the first is, and I heard it today, heard it yesterday as well, from people saying things like, well, we can't, we being Ole Miss, we can't get players because you have LSU and Kentucky and Bruce Pearl in the conference, and you're not just going to get players with them. So you're, you, it's, it's because we don't have a network. Well, that to some degree is accurate, right? You can't do what Kentucky can do in recruiting you can't I would hope Kermit Davis is not doing what Will Wade is doing in recruiting I certainly hope not uh you you don't have the alumni base that's buying into basketball like others but I when you say that you're saying maybe inadvertently that otherwise the program is being maximized that talent evaluation is good transfer portal is good offensive system and everything is good the players just aren't good enough and that is not true that is that is just simply not true is it harder to get players at Ole Miss absolutely it is no doubt but the potential of the program at the moment is not being maximized evaluations are not being maximized offensive system like you said it's a very hard watch so that bothers me like crazy and then the next thing go ahead no, no, no. I was just jumping in there. Finish your thought because I, I, you're on the – like I have the – I don't even know if it's a rebuttal, but finish your thought because I, it, it's a fascinating, uh, like, I guess, conversation regarding roster building goes. Well, and the next thing, when people talk about next year, 
if I were Keith Carter, and he's, he has – I would think he has his mind made up by now one way or the other. But if you have decided to keep him, I think that they need to not just release a statement with a, a cool little graphic that's all done up by the design team with five sentences about Kermit Davis is our coach, whatever. And as you said, he started it last night with the we're going to hit the portal hard and stuff like that. If you want people to buy back in, you have to go into specific detail, very specific detail, I think, why 2022-23 is going to be different. Because it, injuries did make this season worse than it would have been. Injuries did not turn a 14-4 and team into a 4-14 and team. They were not good when they were healthy. They lost at home to Samford healthy. This was never at any point an NCAA tournament team. You could argue this was never an NIT team at any point. That might be a stretch, but you could argue it because regardless of health, NIT teams should not be losing to Samford at home. It shouldn't happen. And that wasn't the only loss. It was Boise State and others getting blown out by Western Kentucky. At no point was this a tournament team. Um, So if I'm Keith Carter and I decide to keep him, I need to give people something to buy because it was four and 14 this year was it 10 and 80 year ago and six and 12 the year prior they finished second to last in the sec this season and 12th in the sec two years ago Uh, this is a trend it's not a one-off because of injuries this is something that is kind of who they are and so what will you do in the transfer portal? Be specific. Are you going to make changes with your coaching staff? Be specific. What is the offensive system going to look like? Be specific. Because if it's just, I believe in Coach Davis, let's all come together and support our team, Rebels, nobody's buying it. Not a single person will buy it. So, anyway. It's, it's fascinating, though, right? Because you're, the whole they can't get players thing, it's – He's he's a fascinating case to me, and I know I keep repeating myself there, but like his top end guys are dudes that are really good and highly rated kids, and that he's getting at a rate that Andy Kennedy didn't get, and that's why when he got a commitment from Deshaun Ruffin, and then when he signed Matthew Morrell prior to that, I was like, okay, maybe they had a down year after they have an NBA player leave the program, but like he's recruiting at a level that would lead you to believe he's going to win. But it's everything else. It's how he's filled out the roster elsewhere. And it's the struggles in the portal. Because Jamie and Brakefield, whatever you think of him now, and it's probably not if you did a re-rank of the 2019 or I guess he was the 20 class, would he be at the top or in, in top 40 as he was? I think he was 42nd technically. Uh, probably not. But, like, he's a top 40 kid coming out of high school. Deshaun Ruffin, I think, technically finished as, like, the 52nd ranked player according to the 247 composite. But then you have Matthew Morrell, who was in the top 45. I can't remember where exactly landed. That's three top 50 kids in your starting lineup, essentially, give or take, like, two spots. But it's how he's filled out the roster elsewhere. And, again, Brakefield's a little bit of an outlier there because of what he is versus maybe what they thought he could be coming out of high school. But, like, it's everything else. Like, he, it's, it's him taking the three high school kids, none of which contributed. Look, James, James White, to be fair to him, showed some flashes down the stretch um, in some games that not a lot of people watched of, like, okay, this kid kind of has something. Like, I could see it. But they needed him to be something immediately. And that's not even an indictment on James White or fair to the kid. He took three high school kids that 
you know, I would say a lot of coaches and uh, people that keep up with the sport and either are in and out of the industry question whether they were high major basketball players, uh, college basketball players. And when you, you know, depending on what who you talked to and what you heard, they were at least in it for Ty Ty Washington. And when you opt to go in that direction instead, it's, it's, it's puzzling and it's head scratching to a degree. And so like, it's not the, the dudes per se, like the, the crown jewel of, a basketball recruiting class, which sounds weird because they're so small, but like, it's not the guy. It's how he's building his roster around everyone else. It's been very bad. And then yeah, like the injuries exposed just that, didn't they? It, it, and he keeps, he keeps tooting that horn. I was going to read this quote from last night. I think in 39, I think this is 38 or 39 years in college basketball. And this has probably been the most challenging, uniquely challenging with some of the guys we lost. Dude, you lost Deshaun Ruffin for pretty much the whole year. I'll give him that, right? The kid yeah. has the wrist deal, comes back, and then has the ACL, and it sucks. You lost Joyner for part of it, and you lost Allen before the season. Like, yes, that's – that's. I'm trying to think the right way to put this. That's significant, right? But yeah. he's not suiting up managers to get through a practice. Like, he's not decimated by it. He lost a couple pieces, and it exposed his lack of depth, and he keeps trying to, like, mask that by saying the injury part of it. And so, like, I don't think that's totally fair. I just think he has to get better at evaluations beyond the kind of known – Sure, commodities, basically. So, and then therein lies uh, the question for Keith Carter is what tells you that one more year is going to change this? And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it will. Maybe everything will work out and they'll hit the portal and they'll get a big to replace Nasir Brooks and they'll get a shooter and, and they'll get a couple of other pieces and Matt Morell returns and Deshaun Ruffin comes back healthy and they're good. It, it's entirely possible that that happens. But when you get to the point of they will be good next year, think about how many ifs you have to get through before you get there. If you can fight off the suitors that will come for Matt Morrell. A lot of people expect them to be able to do it, but you still have to do it. There are going to be brands that try to get that dude. It's going to happen. So if Matt Morrell returns. Yeah, yeah. So if he returns to your team, if Deshaun Ruffin comes back healthy, if you can get a big in the portal, if you can get a shooter in the portal, if you can have quality depth in case of an injury or two, if you can have an offensive system that's more conducive to getting the, the ball in the hands of your scorers with better looks at the basket, if, 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 and if all of those things come true, they'll be what? An NCAA tournament team, you would hope. You're right. You would, ho you would hope, but that's the, there are so many things that have to go right this offseason for them to just get to respectable because let's people need to not sugarcoat what just happened. If I understand it correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, by win percentage, this was the worst SEC season that Ole Miss basketball has had since before I was born. I, I, I would trust you on that one. I don't know off the top of my head, but I mean, I, they haven't, I mean, they never sucked under AK. They, the year in the grant, this was a weaker SEC back then, but whatever that 2010 year AK had where Chris Warren tore his ACL. And then I forget who the other two were. I think it was a Neil Polonese and one other kid, they, three dudes tear like their left ACL that were major players for them. That team didn't bottom out. Like this one did. This team was a Georgia loss away from losing 10 in a row. Like that's another part of this is like, First of all, Kermit and, and just to just to add to what you were saying, so Andy yeah. Kennedy, and and to to your point, and it's absolutely a good one, and it's also a counter to what I said. The SEC is different now, undoubtedly different now. 
uh, Andy Kennedy's worst conference record before the last year where it was either he resigns or they fire him, right? So he was 4-10 when the resignation happened. The worst SEC season he had was 7-9. and nine. What year was that? So it happened three times, uh, 07-08, 08-09, 10-11. 10-11 is the year I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure, with the injury. So, like, that even adds context to it, like, even more. And that was back when you had divisions as well and things got a little bit weirder with the scheduling. And so – but, like, on top of that, it's, it's, it's interesting in the sense of, like, the, yes, it's, they bottomed out. Like – but if you lose 10 in a row, if they had lost 10 in a row, don't you have to can the guy? Like, that's, you, would you think, have to have some pretty serious juice and some pretty serious cachet at the university you're at to lose 10 games in a row to end the year. And it'd be like, all right, sweet, everything's fine. Like, they, even if it was, I mean, look, Patrick Ewing is an absolute legend at Georgetown. And they had just a disgraceful season. I think they lost like 18 or 19 in a row. And people were stunned that they put out a statement that he's coming back. And that's not the perfect parallel, but like, that's the kind of, to use like a vague yeah. example, that's the kind of cachet you have to have. He's Patrick Ewing. Like he is Georgetown in a lot of people's minds. Kermit Day has been here three and a half years. So is it, and I don't think. Four he's now, four complete. It's, it's yeah, four like, done. I don't think he lo- looks through it through this simplistic lens, nor should he, but are we really talking about something where they were a win, a, a road win, granted a shorthanded one where it was an expiring effort at a terrible Georgia team whose coach had pretty much been fired since January away from having to fire him. Like it's, that seems like the case. That seems like one way to frame it that lacks some context, but that's not totally untrue. I mean, but if that's the case, then, then what the hell are you doing? You know, if, if that's the, if that's what's stopping you, a win over a historically bad Georgia team, one of the worst, I mean, I, I've only, been around this for about 12 years Those guys. has the, has there been a worse sec team than that one has, <laughs> has there been a war i mean they hated their coach hated him he was getting fired and they were pathetic what was it one in 17 is what they finished with a loss in the sec tournament in blowout fashion and and hey, he was fired was against alabama somehow somehow i, I mean I, I had somebody ask me the other day uh change the result of the mississippi state game where matt morrell turned into steph yeah. curry are we having a different conversation if that result is different? If Matt Morrell plays like Matt Morrell instead of Steph Curry that night, are we having that? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a very stupid question. It's possible that it is. Um, what, what I don't like in this, and again, I, I'm not saying that they should fire him. I'm not calling for that. I don't necessarily think it's what, I sh- what I'm supposed to do. Um, that's up to Keith Carter and his million-dollar salary to decide. But when, when people say things like, well, who are you going to get? Who, who's better? Who are you going to get? You're not a very good job. You're not an attractive job. Who's better? That kind of concession, uh, I think is, for lack of a better term, I think it's kind of pathetic. If that's your rationale, well, who are you going to get? Then you're punting. And you should not and cannot afford to punt basketball. But that's what that is. Well, who are you going to get that's better? I mean, you heard the same rhetoric when Matt Luke's interim year was over and people were saying things like, well, who are you going to get? Who could be better? Who would take this job? Nobody wants this job. First of all, that was objectively false because a sitting Power 5 head coach would have taken that job. But secondly, 
Blaine Kiffin was out there. And I'm not saying they should have hired him then. I, I, I wasn't calling for that at the time. But there was better out there that would have taken your job at the time. Now, there was a chance that you could have made a bad hire and set your program back. So I'm sure there's a chance. There's always a chance that happens. But when you use the, well, the job's not very good. Who's better? How can you possibly not value yourself higher than second to last in the SEC and third to last in the SEC in two of the last three years? It's a difficult job, a very difficult job. The league has elevated, no doubt. But if you're not trying to win, if you're not trying to make the tournament, if you're not trying to get players and put a product on the floor that's fun and competitive, then what the hell are you doing? What are you doing then? If you are going to say, this is acceptable, this is fine because this job's a little bit tougher than the rest of them, what are you doing? You are wasting your time, you're wasting your money, and that, to me, is a mentality that plagues that school. Luckily, it seems to be going away a little bit more and more each year, but that, who are you going to get? Well, our, woe is me, our job is hard, is garbage. Yes, it's a difficult job, but you can be better than this. You absolutely can. There is somebody out there that can produce results that are better than what you've gotten. Absolutely, there is that person out there. So you try and you try and you try until you find that person. Well, you Are we just going to go through the cycle of firing and hiring coaches? Yes, if that's what it takes. And you work on yourselves in the meantime, but I promise you there is somebody out there that can produce better than third to last and second to last in the SEC in two of the last three years. You can get better results than this. Maybe it does come from Kermit Davis. Maybe he figure, figures it out and it's all good. But I promise you, you can do better than this. So don't accept it. Nobody should accept it, but I've got people in my Twitter mentions. Oh, well, there, there was that injury, or, or it's hard to get players, or we're not LSU. That's all cop-out excuses to me. You can be better than this. Absolutely. And it could be Kermit Davis. He could fix this. It could right? be. He, you know, look. He's it took him forever at middle, forever yeah. at middle to get it rolling, and then he got it rolling. The dude can coach. And sometimes, again, I'm not making excuses for the guy because I don't think his approval rating is it's very good right now amongst the people listening to this. But, like, you know, he, two of his last three years at middle is he wins, he wins an NCAA tournament game both times. One of those is a 15 seed against Michigan State. Like, I don't know. I guess the first year was such an anomaly in the sense that he had an NBA player and a couple really good guards. And, like, I just wonder if it's taking him maybe a little bit too longer, too long to kind of learn – how he needs to play at the SEC level. And, again, that's not an excuse, but, like, in a much better SEC, he has finished above 500 twice. And, hell, they were a second half away last year. If they close out that game on Friday night against LSU, they probably go to the NCAA tournament. And that's the other part about it from the product standpoint is, like, they were a second half away from making the tournament last year, but did anybody have any fun watching that? <laughs> like, it felt like pulling teeth the entire time. And so, I guess to kind of put a bow on that, to your point about punting on – basketball I don't think that'll happen under this athletic director uh Keith Carter and honestly I think if there was a move to be made I think he would start hearing more smoke and again Kermit started he certainly talked uh, last night like a man who thought he was keeping his job so like the last thought I'll offer on that is one I think the reason he probably gets into the years is his overall track record as a head coach not even just at Ole Miss, and the fact that Keith Carter played a pretty instrumental role in hiring Kermit Davis. And I he, – He made sure to remind him of that press conference that he did, didn't he? Uh, yeah, so I'd say I know with pretty good certainty that Keith Carter has been very frustrated by this year. 
Um, but he did kind of play a plan in hiring him, and that doesn't mean he's going to get favorable treatment. And I don't know what Mike White's future at Florida has anything to do like with it. I really don't know. There's just a lot of unknown. But the last thing I'll say is people started, and Neil rightfully pointed out about like the fans made a statement by not showing up. And I got a, I'm not a crowd chamber, but I got a crowd shot of the game from last Saturday against Vanderbilt about 10 minutes before tip off. And it was among the worst I've seen, like even when it was bad for AK. But the reason I don't buy into the whole, well, it's apathy. Fans don't care. Fans have never cared when Ole Miss is bad in basketball. Like they, and part of that, it's still limited sample size because you had the pavilion for so many years. Like, do you think fans gave a shit when, uh, when Andy Kennedy was fired? Of course they didn't. But you know who packed out that place out the very next winter when they were good? In Kermit Davis's first year, they did. So you can bring them back. I don't buy into that like I do with football. Ole Miss has never been a place that has cared about basketball when they suck. There's really just not a whole lot of places out there. Like, what are we talking about here? The Blue Bloods might fill it up when they stink. Nobody cares about anything when the team is bad. Exactly. I think it's more fickle. So I don't necessarily buy into that as a long-term argument. Well, season tickets are down. Like, well, when's the last time they've been up, up for Ole Miss basketball? You know what I mean? Season tickets come weren't, back, weren't. Just the season ticket sales weren't that bad going into this past season. They really right. weren't. Because like, people liked sitting in that building, and I get it's not an event like baseball, but that's the last point I had on it was just like, I don't necessarily buy into the, well, fans don't care anymore. Now you got to make a move. No, if he wins 25 games next year and they finish 12 and set or 11 and 7, people, no, they'll be back. Like, yeah, dude. Not how this I, works. I don't buy that either. There's no fans. There's fewer than Kentucky, of course, but I, like you, I've seen Wednesday nights in the pavilion where there are 6,500 people in that place and that's a good engaged fun environment and, and that's on weekday nights uh, this this is anecdotal and, and i understand that it, it's quite different but just hear me out so ratings came out from nba national games so there's national games not local games but national games for the nba right everybody in this state hates the nba three of the top 10 markets with the highest ratings for national NBA games Saw this. were Memphis, New Orleans, and Birmingham. It's a triangle with Mississippi right in the middle. I understand there's differences and, and stuff like that, but there are basketball fans in this region of the country. They, they exist. We've seen them fill out the pavilion. They watch at the professional level. They're here. They're not as vocal as baseball. But baseball's got the advantage of it's just a party, and that's why some people are there. And basketball doesn't have that. But those people exist. The, oh, the fans don't care at all about basketball at Ole Miss. I think that's BS because I've seen them care. When it, it, the teams haven't even had to be good to get them to draw. Auburn, it, it's a zoo right now because the team is elite. But when Auburn was average, they didn't draw like Ole Miss drew when they were average. Until Pearl got there. Right, like the pearl in that new building. That man knows how to sell a damn product. That's impressive. Yep. And the thing that sucks, the thing that was funny to me about the uh, that NBA list you talked about was there was one complete outlier on there, and it was how far behind Denver was for everyone else in the room. It's like, what the hell? Like, it's Jokic, and then you read, like, any headline, and apparently they have some one of those stupid disputes with Comcast where no one can watch. Well, that. but but the thing is, those were the national ones. Those were for, for, for oh, TNT okay. and ESPN. Those were the national ones. I didn't it's, know that. It's just those – and for what it's worth, somebody got mad at me for saying this. I think Birmingham might be the best sports city in America. I know they don't have teams there, but NASCAR race, Birmingham's always in the top ten rating. Every NFL game, Birmingham's there. Every college football game, Birmingham's there. The NBA, 
Birmingham's there. I mean, they watch sports more than any place in the country. But, uh, yeah, those, that was national games, man. It's, there, there is a, a thirst for basketball here. It's not the same as baseball, maybe not. But there, there is that thirst here. And you don't have to be great. It just have to be fun. That's all you have to be. The last thought I'll leave you with on the Ole Miss side, because I want to hit some of the Howland stuff too, was, you know, you mentioned baseball being an environment and, you know, you get to bring the coolers in and people are enjoying the sun. Did they screw up by – they're not clearly at this point not going to make the tad pad parking. Could you lop off the roof and when there's a good weather day, you play that sucker outside almost like a football stadium let dudes bring in coolers? Like, not many people have two home arenas. Let the kids with the Atlanta Braves snapbacks from that didn't get into UGA but bought the powder blue jersey sit on a cooler and be as drunk as they want to in there in an outdoor basketball stadium. Yeah, until they graduate and go <laughs> right back to Atlanta wearing Georgia gear uh, on game day. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> that's a little too on the nose for even a couple people that might be listening to this podcast. One of which I know. Um, the state side of this, Allen, they win tonight in what was arguably maybe their best performance of the year, and you got to give them a little bit of credit for that where Allen has to know he's a dead man walking at this point, but they don't completely roll it up against the South Carolina team that, Hey, if they made it to Sunday, they might could get an at large bid. I haven't looked at the, uh, the bubble watch and all of that with Lenardi just because Ole Miss hasn't been involved, but like they didn't roll over. They weren't flat. And I caught a little piece of that game before we started recording and they looked pretty energetic, but the change is probably going to be made barring some sort of ridiculous run. And like you mentioned, he is a nice dude. It seems like, he seems like a good man. The they just haven't won enough there. And man, you want to talk about long term apathy? Like we just made the argument that Ole Miss fans will come back if they win, which will probably be true to state fans to some degree. But you talk about just a stale long term sense of apathy since the day Rick Sansbury left. That program feels a little bit sick. And that doesn't mean it can't be fixed, but like they don't have the draw of the pavilion. And I know they're renovating the hump. I would argue, and I don't know their financial situation or whatever that they should probably just build a new arena. Like, the hump is – I like it's a cool environment, so I'm not crapping on the hump. Like, I actually think, like, when it gets rocking in there, how low some of those seats are to the floor is pretty cool. But it's an old, old building. Like, if you just look at building designs, and I'm no savant, but I've been in enough of, like, the modern ones versus the old ones, it's designed a hell of a lot more like the Tad Pad than it is the Pavilion. Like, I'll put it to you that way. What do they do? Where do they go from here? Like, what is the sense? Because – it used to be a pretty cool basketball tradition. I remember being a kid growing up and being an Ole Miss guy and my parents taking me to games, being envious of the state Stansbury years. Cause like Ole Miss never had any of that. And yeah. I'm just curious where they go from here. Like what is the pulse of state people, particularly the ones that listen to y'all show? That's a great question. Uh, first of all, the, the renovation is $34 million, which sounds like a lot. That's, a, that's a still a decent facelift. It's a decent facelift, but uh, I mean, when was the pavilion built? What was the first year, 2014? So think about the cost of things then versus now. $34 million is one-third of the cost of the pavilion, right? Now take into account how much more expensive everything is. It's not enough. If if you want to truly make your building like a a thing, um, it's not enough. But they're doing it, and at least they're doing something to it, because as it is, it, it can't they can't move forward like this. I would, I, I would love for Cohen to come out and be like, hey, you seen the supply chain? Like, we can't build a new one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you're right. And, it is a, that's a third of the money. I mean, AK used to say, <laughs> it's, a, it's the uh, 
it's the best uh, bang for your buck for 96 million or something. He used to say that's the yeah. best bargain for 96 million you could buy because the tab that was so bad. But you're right. So sorry, I derailed you. Continue. Like, yeah, I'm just curious, building aside, where the hell do they go from here with this? It's an interesting question. Uh, somebody will take that job. I mean, the SEC is elevated. Uh, they will pay. See, that's why I push back on people. Who are you going to get? Somebody. I promise. I promise you, you will get somebody with the salaries that, that you can pay, that you do pay. And the SEC is quickly becoming one of the best basketball conferences in America, very quickly. And State has shown more of a capability in the past of getting players uh, than their in-state rival and, and stuff like that. Where I would be concerned, and, and we talk about this a little, um, where I would be concerned if I were a State fan is John Cohen has not exactly been a great hirer of coaches. Um, Chris Limonis has saved him because he won a national championship, but Chris Limonis wasn't who he hired initially. The only reason why Chris Limonis is on that campus was because a guy couldn't keep his phone in his locker during games, mostly. Oh, I thought it was because they had no one warming up in a bullpen and he wanted to make a change. I thought that was a harsh reaction to a tactical error. No, oh, yeah, that's all, that's all that was going on. Well, they never held a press conference, so, so we have no idea. They're waiting to see the results. They'll probably bring him back and get, you know, put him in matching ties, maybe a suit. Think about that for a second. They fired a coach for personal misconduct and never answered a single question about it. Not one question. Nothing. They didn't say anything. They didn't have to think about that, but uh, hey, we're all here seeking truth, right? Um, yeah, I've been you getting nudes in a dugout while you're on the job is a little worse than maybe you know dialing up a massage place that might have a backroom deal a uh, couple states away on a university cell phone. But I digress. Yeah, yeah, but so so that I mean, he may have been a great coach, but and it may not be. It's not John Cohen's fault that guy was like that. How can you know he's going to be such a sleazebag? But still, it didn't work out. You hire Chris Limonis, great hire, wins a national championship. So that cures that, but still, the initial hire, not very good. Uh, women's basketball, Vic Schaefer leaves. Uh, people say, some people say, that Vic Schaefer left in part because of their relationship. Uh, you make a hire, and it doesn't go well in year one, and, and she has to leave because of personal health reasons, but the fans were already checked out on her anyway because year one went so terribly. Then you hire Joe Moorhead, right? Dan Mullen leaves. That was a Scott Strickland hire. You hire Joe Moorhead, and two years in, you fire him and hire Mike Leach. And two years in, what were they, four and eight with a bowl win and seven and five? And, yeah, they have a nice win over Auburn, but they've lost to Ole Miss twice. And, uh, I mean, are recruiting okay? And, uh, you know, so if I, were a, if I were a Mississippi State fan, I would be a little concerned because of the, the recent history in hiring coaches there. And also, I don't think, for whatever it may be worth, John Cohen would be willing to go down the road of, and I don't really know if either of these guys are hireable anyway, but there's a 0% chance that Sean Miller gets a phone call. There's a 0% chance he even looks at Rick Pitino. The, the Lane Kiffin, if there is a, quote, Lane Kiffin of college basketball, will not get a phone call. It won't happen. It's, it's going to be a mid-major guy. It's going to be Bob Ritchie or somebody like that that gets this job, and, and that's fine because Bob Ritchie's winning at Furman. Play a fun brand of basketball. Good shooters, good bigs. They play good defense. That's a tough place to recruit to as well. He'd be a great hire. But that exciting, like, holy shit hire will not be hired by Mississippi State. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be. But 
that's not a John Cohen hire. It's not. It's and it's fascinating his his list uh, track record of hires because and I don't know a ton about the women's basketball coach, but what was her name? Nikki McCray Pinson. That's right. She's a she was a by the book hire. Like on paper, when she was hired, I don't think anyone that keeps up with women's college basketball it was universally praised. Yeah, I was about to say, and the same thing with Joe Moorhead. Like Joe Moorhead didn't work out, but like on paper, when he got hired, it's like this is a shrewd, smart decision. This is like you know pretty safe in terms of like and safe is often using a negative connotation, but like you know there's no sure things in in doing this business and then this practice. But like it felt like pretty close, right? Like you know Penn State offensive coordinators coming off Saquon Barkley innovative offense, you know calm, cool, collected kind of guy. On paper, I was like, damn, they, they crushed it. I thought – I was actually one of the more surprising things in the last half decade to me is that Moorhead didn't work out at State, particularly with the way he recruited, but not really the point. What's fascinating is a couple of his by-the-book hires have not worked out, and then kind of the one he went out on the limb is, is one, the most expensive program and the one that everyone cares about the most. And the jury's still out on Mike Leach, but, like, his zany outside-the-box hire has yet to be one – like, to me, if you're going to make the zany outside-the-box hire – you're either going two and ten, or your people are or people are predicting you to win the West or compete for the West in year two, and they've just kind of been in the middle. You know what I mean? And like, I don't think anyone's predicting State with a very pretty veteran team next year to win the West next year. And look, that's not a fair expectation. But like, I guess the point still stands is like it's fascinating his hiring record because the outside the box hire he made, the one that he didn't go by the book, right? Like, you talk about the equivalent of Lane Kiffin and Sean Miller and that whole thing. Mike Leach was kind of that. It's trying something different. Um. Yeah, one, and and he deserves that credit the for most, that. Like, that five out of ten. That one's been the most like lukewarm. You know what I mean? Like I just, it's a fascinating track record. And I, you know, for a guy that's I think pretty well revered there. How many bites of the apple do you get? Like, I, Leach is going to be there for another year and a half. Do you get to hire a third football coach because he's about to hire another basketball coach? Did well, he didn't hire Howland though? Did he? Uh, I don't believe so, but we also need to keep in mind that Joe Judge was going to be the next head coach at Mississippi State, if not for the New York Giants. Uh, Mike Leach only happened because Joe Judge at the last second did not happen. Somehow the Giants panic hired an unqualified coach because of a college team. (laughs) And credit to Mississippi State for not having to deal. I mean, thank God for the New York Giants if you're a Mississippi State fan listening to this. Because I would take Mike Leach over Joe Judge 100 times out of 100. I really would. Um, so that, that is what makes this fascinating, though, is um, I think it's fair to be concerned. I, I do. I, I, and, I mean, honestly, if he hires Bob Ritchie, I will go on the show and talk about how great of a hire it is. Most people listening to this have no idea who that guy is. And that's okay. And it would be kind of a, you know, lukewarm, easy hire to make. It, it would be. But the guy's a winner, and, it, it, and he's winning at a place that it's hard to win. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and so, and Georgia could have hired, by the way. It it, it sounds crazy. This is going to sound stupid. I think it's easy to make good hires on paper. I really do. I think it's easy to because I'm just I keep using him as an example because some state fans have asked me about him specifically since I grew up going to Furman games and I talk about them a lot jokingly, but. He would be a a very objectively good hire, and it's very easy to make it. You can pay, what, quadruple his salary and and give him more resources. It's a step up, all that stuff. It's so easy to make, and it would be an objectively great hire. doesn't mean it won't work out, but that's the flip side of the John Cohen story is, like you said, 
on paper, McCray Pinson was a great hire. On paper, Moorhead was a great hire. I mean, I remember Stephen Godfrey gushing over it, and understandably so. Can is all these people, but they just haven't worked. Why have they not worked? It's a fascinating question. And like, it's again, they'll get someone and then kind of putting a, I guess, a bow on both like the Ole Miss and state basketball conversation. One, they shouldn't accept the results. And I guess the contrast to that would be the job's going to be a lot harder because I just, I watch Arkansas on a nightly basis and then watch, or nightly basis, I say, I watch a decent bit of Arkansas and then you watch Auburn just watching SEC hoops, right? Damn, these dudes are good. I mean, Alabama was kind of a middling club and like they, they, they have some issues in the front court, but they got a couple guards that are like, geez. And then, I mean, going down, LSU, as it looks like they have five dudes that you would cookie cut out of what you want to make a modern basketball player to be. They're not the greatest. They've had some injury issues. But just from a sheer athlete standpoint and quality of player, it's like, damn. And so with the way the SEC is currently, and look, it goes in cycles, and it'll eventually probably leaking out a little bit. But with the amount of money that they – you know, they had that year, Bracken always brings up, where they had like three, four teams make the tournament. I think the conference office was like, hey, this is not acceptable. Like we can't just become a football conference and it's been on the upswing since then. But I guess I say all of that to say, you know, eventually if Ole Miss hires a coach and when state does one hires one this cycle, uh, which we all presume would be the case, barring them winning this thing. It's a, it's a bear right now. It's a tough time to step into the sec without resources or the same level of resource. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I'm just pointing out the fact that, Boy, both of these dudes, if Kermit gets, eventually gets replaced and then, you know, whoever state is this year, they got their work cut out for them. They do. And I wonder what the different thing is, air quotes, uh, that can separate you for a program with limited resources. Like Arkansas, for example, has a team full of transfers right now. Uh, but they're signing what? Top five class? Yeah. Somewhere in there. I so this something in here next year is – and if Note comes back, holy cow. Yeah. But right now, they're, they're a team full of transfers. But in college basketball, the transfer market has been ahead of football. Lane Kiffin, to, to keep using local examples, a bit of a trailblazer in terms of the use of the portal to try to level the playing field. I think it's a very smart strategy because at a place like Ole Miss in football, you have to be different or else you'll get smoked. You want to know how I know that? Because for the last, what, 130 years, Ole Miss football has been getting smoked largely by playing the game the same way Alabama does. So you've got to do it differently. And I think, I think this will work. What's that in basketball, though? Because you've got teams that are already portal-heavy that are very successful. So what is that thing? Is it just doing that? Or, or is there something else that, that a, a coach can do at a place like this that is different, air quotes, different, that can help level the playing field some? Is there an air raid in college basketball? Is there the next transfer portal thing in college basketball that can separate you? I think it's just being better at evaluating. I mean, I did a story, and one of my first stories I did as, like, the sports editor of the student newspaper was talk to AK about why they had so many foreign kids on there. Some absolute dynamite quotes from that, by the way. Oh, I bet. Some of the couple from I would say at least two of them, probably not uh, – <laughs> I was about to say TV friendly, probably just not friendly to share in this current climate anyway, but he just said, man, it comes in circles. Like he used to be, you know, filled with kids from Memphis and Jackson. And now we have Polish kids and Latvians. But I think what actually really happened there was they lost out on that Johnny O'Brien kid, LSU. And I think AK was like, all right, man, like 
I can't I can't win bidding wars, and it's different with NIL now, and the recruiting landscape changed a little bit. But I think he started to take a, like a different strategy and a little a little more unique strategy. But I think with basketball, it's not like hey, let's run the triple option or let's do the air raid or do something quirky in that sense. You can find seven dudes and field a competitive team across the country, but there's so much talent to mine through, or there's so many guys to mine through to try to find diamonds in the rough and find talent. I think that's the way to do it. I think you just have to be very good at talent evaluation and how it fits into your scheme. And I know that sounds like a cliche to answer, but like, you know, Steph Moody didn't have a bunch of SEC programs even in a weaker SEC knocking on his door. Like Marshall Henderson was a little bit of damaged goods, and those are the two most yeah. obvious examples. But, you know, AK found a scorer and for all of his flaws knew how to build a team around him. Let a guy take 20 shots a game. Have a guy that's a pretty good rebounder and is somewhat offensively competent, you know, that's playing around the post. Have a pretty good point guard that's good at distributing and run some basic action and, you know, see where the chips may fall. And I think that's why AK's teams never suck to where I guess what, like the, uh, I guess what I'm getting at without like losing my train of thought is you got to recruit really well and kind of find diamonds in the rough. And you have to know exactly who you are and like how you want to play and what you want to be. And I think Kermit knows that. It just doesn't work in the SEC. And that goes back to the front court oriented nature of this. You have to have dynamic guards to win in this league. You just do. Like you can probably get away with the front court building it inside out at middle. But that to me is the bottom line from the Kermit side of it. And I think Howland is a little bit different in the sense, but Howland is, hey, you're not going to go walk it up the court and ground and pound in this version of the SEC. It's going to make for a terrible watch. And so I think what you're looking at is two coaches right now with a little bit of outdated philosophies where they know who they are, but that who they are, that identity doesn't necessarily work. And for Kermit, I think it'll be interesting if he changes it. Ben Howland, does he retire or does he cash a check somewhere else where that might work? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, we'll soon find out what the answer is, right? Yeah, because I, mean, I think Kermit because it, here, but he better change now. Will he? That's the next question, is, is what will change? Will anything change? Will there be a, a new offensive system that is more conducive uh, to having somebody like Matt Morrell score the basketball? Um, I, I watch a lot of NBA. I'm aware it's a, it's a totally different game because basically everybody on the floor can shoot uh, that doesn't live in New Orleans. Like all the other teams in the league have guys that can shoot. Um, so offense can be a little different. You can run a two-man pick-and-roll game, and defenses can't collapse on it because they leave a shooter. So it opens things up a little bit more. But, man, maybe they do it, and maybe I miss it, or maybe it's defended well. But I, I haven't seen that action at Ole Miss often this year, where you put the ball in Matt Morrell's hand, and you get a you get Nasir Brooks or Sammy Hunter when he plays to set a pick at the top of the key and let him either shoot the basketball or attack the basket with the floor spaced. And again, maybe you can't space the floor because nobody can shoot. But everybody else in the SEC, not named Mississippi State and Georgia, are able to do that. They're able to generate good looks for their guards. That, that's the biggest problem with Ben Howland. He's got a great guard in Iverson Molinar. When games are close, they've lost, they lost a lot of close games this year. Never generates offense for Molinar. It just doesn't happen. Um, there was one game, I forget what they played, where Molinar didn't take a shot in the final three and a half minutes of the game. Not one shot. And they lost a close game. See, that I didn't, that's of, inexcusable. Like, the way yeah. that kid fills it up, good God. 
But that's kind of the, that's a test of whether your offensive philosophy works. You just mentioned it, where they lost a lot of close games when the faltered in the last four minutes. Ole Miss dealt with it last year, too, when they were more competitive. If you're not getting baskets consistently when it's toughest to score, you probably need to do something different philosophically. Yeah, no doubt. So will that happen, though? Uh, will you keep your entire coaching staff? And if you – which makes this such a conundrum because clearly if Kermit Davis returns next year, it's win or go home. It's simply put, you got to win or else. Are you hiring quality assistants that come into a win or else situation? Makes it tougher. It's odd. Uh, I don't know. It's Kirby. different. It's different for like Lane Kiffin hiring. I keep using him, but whatever. Um, it's easier for Lane Kiffin to, hi- to hire assistants when he might leave because when he leaves, one, he takes people with him, and you're not part of a staff that was fired. So even, if, even if you think, well, he might not be here long, you get an apartment in town, and if he does leave, if he gets hired away, he might take you with you, may, might take you with him, or you get to say, we won so much that the Vikings hired him away, or whoever. It's easier to sell than, well, shit, we lost a lot, and I got fired. It's just – it's a whole a whole different thing. So are you getting – if you do make changes on your staff like people want, are you going to get quality assistance that will come in when they know that we better win or else? It's and maybe a, you can. Maybe the salary in the SEC job is enough to get somebody. I don't know. But It is so much more about connections and college hoops in terms of like who you're familiar with or whatever because I think they have one assistant to keep an eye on as far as departing, and if it did – it would be because of a previous connection. So, I don't know. Fascinating nine months ahead. And then, you know, speaking of kind of the hiring and firing cycle, the college baseball situation in the state is always uh, always filled with content. And I was listening to Neil and Chase the other day as the, we were in the midst of this MLB lockout. I actually think they brought up a tweet that you had where Neil was talking about how, like, you made a good point regarding, like, covering college baseball more as far as, like, social media or whatever. But, like, yeah, I don't think they should air the games or whatever because the College World Series does a, a terrible job in terms of ratings. But, yeah, there was a void that they, they could have filled with baseball content, and now oh. it doesn't matter. But Oh, I, I agree completely. And like two things can be true at once. It's definitely a growing sport. I mean, you've been around this now, set, what, at least seven, eight years to where probably longer from your time in school. Looking around at, like, the fan bases and stuff now and the people that are actually interested on a given weekend and even just, like, student sections, the sport is growing. Like, two things can be true at once. Like, baseball is team-oriented. Like, do a lot of Ole Miss fans, when they're not in the College World Series, watch a ton of the College World Series? I would argue no. And it's kind of the same thing for Major League Baseball. Not necessarily playoffs. That's a different animal. But are you watching Sunday night baseball if your team's not playing? Probably not. But the reason I, I brought that up was to get to that is they got on the conversation of radio show topics and content or whatever. And we've talked about this before. We're kind of fortunate being in the state of Mississippi where, it, you know, it's a state that's crazy about college baseball to where my God, having imagine having to feel as soon as Ole Miss's year ended or state's year ended in basketball. It's like, all right, we got to figure out something until August. Like let's do spring football. Let's start busting out too deep stuff like that. We are fortunate in that sense to where this carries you to June. Like the, the, Content bridge where it's a dead period, particularly if you have a program in the state that goes to Omaha, it's about five weeks now. Like, yeah. And you can, you can make do with that. Five months is a whole different animal. So we're fortunate in that sense. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I, um, it's funny you mentioned that when you look around the, the fan bases elsewhere. Southern Miss, for example, is still in the same state. 4,000 people a night. 
But look around the rest of college baseball. Tennessee now is filling their place up. It's everywhere. It is growing. I wonder how much it will grow, though. That's, is there a ceiling? Because it's clear that people have made investments into baseball expecting it to not lose money anymore, right? It's never going to make money. They won't have TV deals like basketball. But in a place like Ole Miss or State or Arkansas or LSU, you can make a little bit. And Oklahoma State with their new part, Tennessee with all their investment, it feels like they're starting to recognize that we can make a little money off this in the future. But will that day ever come is something that I'm fascinated by. Will college baseball ever be a thing that you can truly make money on? They're going to have to fix some of the administrative stuff, and I'm not sure that ever happens as far as like the scholarship and the third paid assistant. But in terms of just generating interest, it's a fascinating conversation from the standpoint of like, I have a buddy of mine, his name Walker Robertson, who when I, we were kids, like I've known him since we were probably 10, 11 years old, but like he used to crap on like us, like me and whoever else in our like friend group like Major League Baseball. He would dump on it. Like, like, I'm not watching professional baseball. It's boring as hell. But he loves Ole Miss baseball. I text about him with it all the time. And, like, I guess one of the things I've realized in the last year and a half and kind of being more cognizant about it is, like, so he – that's – I think it's a good example because that's a guy that would never turn on a professional baseball game. Doesn't care about the Braves. Like, doesn't really, you know, keep up with arbitration and, you know, whose prospects are in what minor league system because, well, again, why would you? That doesn't sound necessarily interesting content for even professional baseball fans. But he loves Ole Miss baseball and following Ole Miss baseball. And, like, it's in a weird, flawed way an incredible product. I didn't watch that Texas State-Texas game the other night, but that's a March game on a Tuesday, and the kid freezes the guy with the breaking ball where Texas State puts the series, and he just does the horns down with the dugout. The, yeah. The Saturday game against for Ole Miss and uh, UCF, maybe it was Friday night, maybe it was Brandon Johnson, but both dugouts were acting as if that was a game to go to Omaha. And did that game really matter well, in the long run? Wait, you're talking about Friday night in Orlando? Yeah. Like, well, there is there is a little a little something else. Okay, yeah, there's a little little side, but it lasted throughout the weekend in the one zero game and, and everywhere else. Like, did that game really matter in the long run? I mean, no, but it's not insignificant at the same time. So it's like that perfect blend of like there's a ton of games and you have wiggle room, but there's also a lot of emotion and kind of passion, I guess, for the lack of a better word, in college baseball that I think people have picked up on. You're seeing these alternative outlets like Barstool and stuff cover it now. Like Jared Carabas, who I don't listen to a lot of Barstool. Well, he left, by the way. He left Barstool? Yeah, for DraftKings or something. Whoa, how long ago did that? That's a uh, wow. A few days, recent? yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's a uh, I wow. It, that, anyway. I still can't uh, quite figure out what DraftKings is. Like, well, what, what are you if you're hiring content you know, guys? I thought they were daily guys fantasy. from Barstool. Is that not what they are? That, I, I, I thought, well, they have sports books and stuff now. I don't know. I don't understand it, but yeah. But so but on top of that, like you have these like fringe outlets covering it. And I think some of that was the absence of content. Again, it was a little short lived because once Major League Baseball, the machine that is keeps like gets back turning again, it'll be back to normal. But I think people kind of like look, saw a small sample size of some non-conference games that are not always great and was like, this product is kind of weirdly electric. It keeps you invested in games and it's an entertaining product, even though it may last too long. Sometimes I'm like you mentioned, I'm curious how far they can take that, but it is a fun, quirky product in ways that's kind of hard to describe. I think it's a lot of it's emotion based. It is. And you know, you can't compare college basketball to the NBA. 
it's almost a totally different sport. The, the scores, I have people tell me all the time, oh, they don't play defense in the NBA. They play defense in college. There's no difference. The scorers are better in the NBA. That, that's why it looks like defense isn't getting played. When you have seven-foot-tall Kevin Durant that has handles as good as anybody in the league, how do you stop him from scoring the basketball? But anyway, college football has quirks, but it's also a high-quality product. College baseball, I think, delivers the same, largely. The highest level of college baseball is a very well-played game. You've got all the quirkiness and, and stuff and the emotion, but they play good ball, too. Like, it's a comparable product. You have pitchers that throw mid to upper 90s. Hell, Tennessee's got a guy coming to Oxford in a couple of weeks that throws 105. So you've got good velocity. You've got good play. It's a comparable product when you watch the two side by side. So you get the quirks and the emotion paired with, oh, shit, these guys are good, too. And I don't think you get that as much in college basketball outside of the tournament coming up here soon. Oh, it's yeah. only quirks. That's all it is. It's just quirks. It's not quality play. It's amazing how many people that like the like I'll look up and like Casey Mize is already in the Tigers major league rotation and like that guy in 2018 was pitching for Auburn like and if you're an SEC baseball fan that even if you just keep up with Ole Miss and that was like four and a half years or five years give or take I forget how long Bregman was in school but you've watched Alex Bregman like Casey Mize Alex Lang I mean go through the May future major leaguers the amount of talent they have in the SEC every year is insane so when you get to conference play. It is a high-level baseball. It's a high-quality product. It's different. It's not comparable to MLB, but it's certainly high-quality. And so, and their postseason kind of rules. The the round, not round robin, but the four-team tournament followed by two out of three ser- to get to this eight-team World Series. For whatever reason, you could argue maybe it's not the most efficient system, but that creates so much drama because you can have a four seed go into someone's regional one night and the pitcher gets hot. Remember Jackson State when Ole Miss went to. Uh, went to Omaha against ULL, ULL had to come out of the loser's bracket in their regional because Jackson State kid pitched the game of his life and they won the game one to nothing. Yeah. They almost had an old Miss, Mississippi State super regional because of that. Like, their postseason is awesome. Like, one of the most underrated weekends of the year is that, that first June weekend with all the regionals and supers. Like, it's honestly great TV. Now, again, it's always going to be somewhat of a niche sport, but I'm just curious, like, how far they can take that because – it's, uh, you know, with more and more options and ways to consume content now, I think college baseball is getting a little more shine, which is, which is good. And it helps if you have a fun team to watch, which I think Ole Miss has been so far. And I guess we'll hit briefly on both, both clubs here so far. I'm just curious your opinions on Ole Miss so far. Mine generally have been, holy shit, is this offense deep? And I, they're even deeper in the bullpen than I thought. They just need to figure out the rotation. I didn't think the rotation would be this big a week of a link so far early in the season because if they figure that out and they have options this team could be pretty pretty damn good yeah and I'm glad that they're starting to do make some changes I remember saying after the opening weekend and I got especially from another particular individual on our show some some wide eyes when I said it after the opening weekend I mean it was Charleston Southern right but I said I feared that Ole Miss does not have the dominant starting pitching to carry the team to where people think they are. Because when you look at this team in the prism of they are a championship contender, they have not had the starting pitching of a championship contending baseball team. Great offense, I understand that. But as you saw on Saturday in Orlando, sometimes you're going to run into a guy that can really pitch it. 
And luckily, Gaddis was pitching that day and, and matched that. They still lost the game, but matched it. That's but, the one constant. He's been terrific. They got to figure out yeah. the other two. That's the yeah. that's the key. Yeah, you, you are. I think it's both of them, honestly. But you were definitely not hosting a super regional, being a national seed, competing for a championship with that rotation all season long. It wasn't going to happen. You weren't going to win enough games. What, nine innings and in, in three appearances was not going to get it done on Sundays, and the stuff wasn't good enough anyway. And, I mean, Diamond looks great for the first two innings, and then the velocity and stuff drops off dramatically after that. I wouldn't be surprised if here in a couple of weeks you see two new faces in the rotation as opposed to just one that you're getting this weekend uh, with Doherty. I think you might see Doherty or in Elliott possibly in the rotation soon because that's all they're missing and the bullpen is deep enough that you can take those guys out of it and still be very good and also put yourself in position to win these games on these weekends and be the championship contending team that everything else tells you that you have. You have a championship winning offense. They'll figure it out defensively. Still not great, but they'll, they'll be fine there. And you've got a bullpen that can do it. Even at, after moving pieces around. So it's good that it's happening as soon as it's happening. I wouldn't be surprised if it's taken another step further, though, in the very near future. Yeah, it's fascinating from that sense because I do think they have options. And what's been interesting about the rotation was I was surprised Mike made a change with Diamond and moved him off the day so far because that was his first quote-unquote bad outing of the year even though even against the Charleston Southerns and the like the VCUs and his two other starts it's kind of like I don't know he got ahead of some hitters and there were some like he doesn't have that pitch to put it to put hitters away like velocity issues aside and so there were some kind of I would say signs to where it's like like is this really your Friday night guy even though he's getting outs right now but I was surprised he Mike went ahead and made the move because Colin and I talked about this on Sunday where it was kind of like, do we know where this is going? Yes, but like has Diamond done anything not to deserve a chance to start on Friday against Oral Roberts? Not that that really matters. No, we figured it would head toward a path to where he puts him in a hole once or twice in SEC play and Mike's kind of like, okay, we can't keep doing this. We have to make a change. I think one of the reasons Mike was more proactive about it was because of what he's seen in the bullpen, because of what he's had in Riley Maddox and what Mason Nichols has looked like in Hunter Elliott. I think that's made Mike more comfortable maybe being a little more rash. And I don't – people – like I feel like there's a negative connotation on rash, but a little more rash and kind of quick to make a uh, to make a shakeup because I do think what I look at now, based on what he's done, I think he wants to have his ducks in a row by SEC play. Now, the McDaniel thing – I didn't understand when they made the rotation, when they announced it opening weekend. I never figured he was the Sunday guy all year long. And then, I mean, you talk about the first sign of trouble on Sunday because you forget the first run he gave up against UCF was an unearned run because Alderman dropped the most routine fly ball you could possibly have. I mean, it looked like a little league play. I don't mean to dump on the guy. He didn't see it in. But, like, he didn't have to move, and he just dropped the ball. But as soon as the bases got loaded, Mike was like, nope, like it's the third inning. I've seen enough like so that to, to me looked like a guy like Mike does not believe in Drew McDaniel as the Sunday starter and that seemed pretty no funny. and and after the game you could hear that he was done with it yes I, I think he that was a man realizing that what he has out there is a known commodity and it's not changing and he could find a role for Drew McDaniel he could be an okay four yes. starter but like that that's not changing on the give you enough outs on Sunday what's fascinating to me is 
is he went like the indirect route of what I think will end up being the rotation. And I wrote about this earlier in the week or had written whatever the proper English is. I should probably know that. Yeah, whatever. Jack Doherty has pitched twice, 11 days apart, and you're one weekend away from conference play. That's arguably the best arm on your staff. He's had 12 strikeouts and no walks in five innings. Small sample size, inferior competition. But, like, my God, what else do you want the guy to do? And it's been a product of not really finding real spots for him to pitch in. That's not a critique. But if you have this guy and you went and won a road series against what I think will be our RPI top 50, 60, I thought UCF was good. I don't know if you – like, they impressed me. I was like, they have two real guys on the mound. And, like, Mm -hmm. I know they only scored two runs last 18 innings. But to me, that's a regional team. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, maybe Ole Miss had their sons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ole Miss had their own piano stealing sauce. Yeah, they, they put a camera out in center field, you know. But they were pretty good. And the fact that they, they were on a road series without using Jack Doherty might seem like a good thing. But is that really a good thing? Is that really the point in all this? Like, to him not to pitch on the weekends? Because I don't think yeah. <laughs> So, now he's starting on Sunday. I think that's an inverse route to get to Doherty on Friday night, Gaddis on Sunday, and Diamond – or Gaddis on Saturday, Diamond on Sunday. Because as much of critique as Diamond has taken, and rightfully so, what he's doing right now, until I guess I see something different, is okay on Sunday. It's like a more talented Sam Smith in a way. Like, he can get dudes out and give you a chance on Sunday. That guy can't get you out at the rate that's required on Friday. So I'm curious right. to see how Mike shuffles that and how long it takes him to realize that. Or maybe he goes another route. But I guess what I'm getting at is Gaddis on Friday, Diamond on Saturday, and Doherty on Sunday. To me, there's no, like, path to where that makes sense long term. And that's not a critique. He has time to fix it. But I don't think this is permanent. And to Chase's point, as I've heard him say a couple of times, if there's a narrative about Mike Bianco that's not true, and I haven't really heard people say this much, it's the unwillingness to tinker with his rotation. There's a track record of him doing that. To to his credit, for for as stubborn as he may be on some other things, this isn't one of them. Uh, He he will, after this weekend, adjust it again if if he sees fit. That is a thing that has happened before. And I think I think I'm with you. I think it's going to happen again, uh, with either a different order, or soon to be a, a new face, as well. What state's problem? How much time you got? Yeah, um, like, they're fascinating. And I'll start off by saying this: the Landon Sims thing sucks. That guy was oh, electric to watch. And I wasn't watching the game on Friday when that happened. But someone sent me like I think the pitching ninja guy may have put out the video. Like, that's a man who knew what had just happened, and that freaking blows. But they did have to be on that, too. He was emotional in the dugout afterwards. That that was hard to watch. But luckily, if it is what everybody thinks it is, and it's Tommy John, he'll be on a major league – or not a major league team, but he will be employed by a major league team next year. Uh, No problem. I just selfishly wanted to watch him. He's electric. Oh, yeah. I love the way he works, man. It's so fast and deliberate, and there's no wasted time. It's just – it's almost like he's mad that he has to be on the mound. It's he like just wants violent. to get off it as it's fast as possible. a violent arm motion. He, like, his stuff is like violent in some ways. Yeah. So it's like, I'm about to shove this down your throat, and there's just no way you're going to hit this. I loved it. I think it can be a combination of a lot of things, man. And, and this is what I, I've – I even said it yesterday. There's – there are some people that think that Chris Limonis and the team has, quote, mailed it in. Or that the national championship that they won was a fluke. Uh, I saw some people say that Scott Foxhall, their pitching coach, should be left in New Orleans after the two-lane series loss. Things like that. Man, from that, from that team last year, they Not lost that their... I appeased people for a while. Yeah. March. 
they lost their entire starting rotation and multiple high-level culture-setting veterans. Why is it unreasonable that they are struggling in the early going? I mean, seriously, Ole Miss's lineup offensively next year, if they struggle to start the 2023 season, not a single person should be surprised. There's going to be a ton of new faces, a ton of new faces. I mean, after losing Hoagland and Nikhazy, Ole Miss struggled on the mound to start the 2022 season. That is something that you should have expected or at least should not be surprised by. So you lose your entire rotation and you don't pitch it well to start. You lose a bunch of culture-setting veterans that played really good baseball, and the guys that replaced them aren't as good yet, and people are freaking out. It's like they're, they're talented. They're just – Rowdy Jordan's not there anymore, and that's okay. Another guy can become him, but he's, he's not there right now. So, yeah, losing to Nor- a, a, a game to Northern Kentucky in a series that you did win is not good. Getting smoked by Southern Miss in the midweek is not good. But that same midweek starter for Southern Miss turned around and went eight complete against Tulane last night and gave up, I think it was no runs on four hits and eight complete yesterday against Tulane. So that guy beating you on a Tuesday isn't all that bad, clearly. Um, But this shouldn't surprise people. It really shouldn't. I heard things like the expectations are even higher and the pressure is even higher, stuff like that. I understand that you think that after winning a championship, you should just be Alabama where you go win the next one. That's not how this sport works, and that's not generally how sports work. Them taking a step back is not surprising because they lost freaking everything, and yet people are still surprised. I'm not. I think they're going to end up being pretty damn salty by the end of the year. They will because that's what they do. They're just not that right now, and people are losing it. I was going to say, there's a world where they end up fine. And what's fascinating to me, and I haven't watched – I mean, I've watched a couple of their games, and I don't know, like, the inner workings. Like, I mean, you who's supposed to watch, like, both programs do. But some of the um, angst from what I've read seems to be from the fact that they viewed next year as the rebuilding year and kind of the retooling year. And they felt like they returned enough off of this year's club that they would be competitive in a national seat again. And, look, they still could. I actually think – you know, not to be hyperbolic, but I think state there's state fans listening to this. They probably agree in the sense that, you know, a couple of these losses early are going to make the path to a national seed, a top eight national seed, that is, a lot more difficult. And, like, the margin for error is gone. But, like, I guess, they, I guess what I'm getting at is they thought that they would still be in the mix again to win another national title this year, and next year was kind of the retooling year. And you're kind of seeing the a little bit of the 2017 Ole Miss syndrome to where – you have a bunch of talented kids that haven't done it yet. Sometimes it takes them a year. Like the plug and play guy that hits immediately is, I won't call it rare in college baseball, but when you're lying on three and four of them, more often than not, it doesn't work out as much. And, you know, again, they're probably end up going to be fine by the end of the year. The Sims injury hurts them, but it just seems like they, like you mentioned, they lost a lot of culture setting veterans and they're relying on a couple of dudes offensively. And it seems like on the mound as well that haven't been there, done that yet. And, experience is invaluable in any sport but particularly sec baseball because the level of competition is just so much higher and so much better i mean look talking to a freshman who's struggling at the plate in the sec i mean like hey like what's what's been the difference like their eyeballs get wide to where they're like oh how much time do you have like it's it's tough so i think they'll be fine it's just been fascinating the slow start and kind of seeing the uh 
the cachet amongst the fan base of winning a national title eroding pretty quick. Not that that really matters, but just people it are doesn't. pissed off again because they're – Yeah, I, I, try, I tried to say it the other day, and I got a lot of pushback. I was like, guys, you, he, Chris Limonis just won your first national championship in the history of your entire institution, not baseball, the whole school, the <laughs> first one ever – He's allowed to have a down start to a year without people going nuts. First one ever. Like, I don't, I don't understand how you can't have perspective on that. I, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Um, he, he asked a very dumb question, honestly. He said, would you rather win or, or be Ole Miss, what, what Ole Miss is under Mike Bianco, which is getting – the last two years to super regionals, right? Game theory of a super regional, but not making it to Omaha. Would you rather do that for 10 years or win a national championship and suck for five years was the question he gave me. And I said, give me the natty and let me miss the next five postseasons. I don't care. Give me the national championship. I would rather that. And yet th that capital is already slowly going out the window. And some of it is a credit to just how rabid the fan base is, right? Like, that's kind of what you're supposed to do to some degree as fans. Like They did sell 13,000 season tickets. I yeah, mean, that, that's a real thing they did. <laughs> that, will, uh, that will haunt. I think they'll be fine. I actually, from watching them so far, I would be fascinated to see if they host. I think they – I would actually lean two seed right now. There's more time. But, like, I'm, I'm – Again, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of fascinated to see. No, it. dude, they're going to be a two seed at, at like the U is UCLA good at like the UCLA regional, and everybody's going to be pissed that. off. Yeah, because they're going to go win it, and they'll get lucky that the other side of the bracket had like the three seed win, so they're going to host the super regional, and they're going to find a way to go to Omaha again because uh, Oregon State got COVID, and so I mean it's, it's gonna go, it's gonna go down like that. They are yeah, they're they SOBs in the postseason. They maximize their opportunities, which is kind of the antithesis of what Ole Miss has done. Before we get out of here, a couple of just random topics that popped up uh, either right before or right after I texted you to like the, to uh, come talk shop on the pod. The NFL, people love to do the basketball this league. The NFL doesn't have the same sizzle when you actually trade dudes, but my God, some earth-shattering stuff in the NFL the last couple of days. Um, and I think Aaron Rodgers probably thought he was going to get a news day to himself, which I think he uh, – probably relished in Russell Wilson was actually like, sorry, dude, go back on your 12 day cleanse. I'm about to just break this entire place. Let's start there. Russell Wilson going from Seattle to Denver, Denver, the last couple of years, how many times in the last half decade has Denver been the trendy pick to pick, make the playoffs because of everything they have, except the quarterback. It's like good defense, good running game, pretty good offensive line and decent weapons. Like I like Denver this year. And then you realize, Oh shit. No, that's true. Lock throwing passes for them. Or that's Brock Osweiler throwing passes for them. That's Teddy Bridgewater throwing passes for them. This was interesting to me. I don't necessarily, people wanted to, like, I saw a bunch of the trade grades where it was like Seahawks D plus, you know, Broncos a, like, I kind of liked it honestly for everyone involved. And, you know, is it wise to trade probably a hall of fame quarterback like Seattle? No, but, it seemed like they were just kind of over the whole Russell Wilson thing. He's the strangest, like, enigma of a quarterback in the NFL, and it's almost all personality-based from what I mean. What did you think of this trade? You mean Mr. Unlimited. Not Russell Wilson, okay? That's his name now, Mr. Unlimited. If y'all don't know what I'm talking about, you got to watch that video. Um, if you're Seattle, though, I saw people saying Seattle should have never traded him. He didn't want to be there. 
I mean, I mean for, for the fact that they had a guy that didn't want to be there and they got what they got for him is honestly kind of impressive for Seattle. So you, you traded off your, I say aging, he's not that old, but he's in his 30s. So he's not a young quarterback anymore who, who's coming off the worst season he's had in quite some time. And he doesn't want to be in your city anymore. He didn't want to play for your organization anymore. He didn't last year either. That's why he gave a list of destinations. You just couldn't make the deal. So considering all those traded, that was my favorite part of that. Hey, I oh, don't yeah, want, yeah. I'm not asking for one, but if you were like, here's, here's where I would go. That was, I mean, that's a trade request. That's it's just what that is. Um, but I honestly, I thought that Seattle came out of it pretty good because he didn't want to be there. He's aging somewhat. And he's coming off the worst year he's ever had. So, so get what you can for him. Makes Denver an instant contender. Yes. I think it makes Seattle very interesting for one Matt Corral. Um, and, and here's where I, I kind of walked myself through this. I don't think Corral's going at nine. I, I don't think he's, anybody's taking him in the top ten right now. For whatever reason, it just doesn't feel like it's going to happen. Um, maybe with a great pro day, that'll change. I can see Seattle doing something like drafting a defensive end or whatever they need at nine and using their extra draft capital that they acquired in the Wilson trade to come back into the first round late and get a guy like Matt Corral late in the first round using the capital they got in the Wilson trade. That Because Cleveland did that. Two might get someone's ear and be like, look, I was only with this guy for a year, but trust me, do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and for whatever it's worth, there were a couple people that reported at the combine that Seattle had talked with Corral and maybe it was just Pete Carroll throwing Lane Kiffin a bone, but um, that, that those conversations were had. And apparently Seattle came away impressed and is intrigued with him as a prospect. If those reports are actually true, I could absolutely see Seattle pulling a Cleveland. Hopefully it goes better. Uh, than what Cleveland did with Johnny Manziel, but they traded back into the first round late to get a quarterback that was falling that was extremely talented. And and maybe that, that happens here. So, yeah, Denver championship contender for sure. Seattle now becomes an interesting player uh, for, for Matt Corral. I'm not just because he's local. I'm so fascinated to, to figure out where he's going to go because Dane Brugler had him somewhere in the 50s. And there's no shot he drops in the 50s. No shot that he drops that low, right? I get the steadiness of the Kenny Pickett as a prospect of someone who's not like a film quarterback evaluating Savant. But I just don't understand how you look at what uh, Matt Corral did the last two years and then look at how he corrected some of his decision-making stuff the last two years and think, yeah, I love this picket guy instead. Or like Desmond Ritter. I get the 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 plus, like the upside downside of Malik Willis, I do, because I actually thought he was pretty impressive in Oxford and he got the absolute hell kicked out of him all day and, you know, got back up every time and made a couple impressive throws. But a couple of those other guys, like I just don't understand it. I don't think it'll happen that way. It never happens this way. Answer like, me this. Every time they meet quarterback class, how often do they talk them into three dudes in the first round? Because quarterback is the most sought-after commodity in the league. He's going in the first round, just a matter of where. Answer me this. What is one thing, one thing that Sam Howell can do that Matt Corral cannot do equally as good or better? One thing. Put up with Phil Longo. 
I have no idea. I don't Seriously. Yeah. Hey, you, you've got this Sam Howell thing that um, he's just creeping up and keeps moving up in the first round. And you would think like, oh, well, he must be bigger. Nope. He's got like six more pounds on him in weight, but they're like identical height and weight. And like the, the Howell thing, I've read a couple of stuff in the last couple of days trying to figure out like what the actual corral buzz is. And apparently Howell had a terrible offensive line this year and just got absolutely destroyed. But it is just kind of funny that like Phil Longo leaves, you know, Matt Corral. I guess he never really played him for Longo, but like, you know, never really got to see that through. And then all of a sudden this Howell guy who's supposed to be the number one quarterback, like undisputed taken in this class, all of a sudden his stock start tanking because of Boots Longo. I don't know. There may be a correlation there. What are the Saints going to do? Who's I have no idea. Uh, my guess, Jameis Winston. I don't think that's bad. There was he was kind of figuring it out last Dude, year. There are so many people. They would have made the playoffs. They they were five and two when he got hurt. He was second in the league in QBR. He had he had like a fourteen to three touchdown to inter or twelve to three or fourteen to three touchdown to interception ratio. What more could you ask for? What, what, what else do you want? I can't tell you the number of people that have said to me during the show that Jameis sucked. Okay, were uh, you watching? Yeah. Because, no, he didn't. Sean Payton didn't seem like he let him throw the football because that guy's not a Sean Payton quarterback because I think Sean Payton doesn't want his dudes having a – you know, he doesn't want to drop back knowing that he has a guy that could throw a pick in any instant. But it feels like when he got hurt in that first Tampa game that Sean Payton was finally coming around slightly to the idea, like, let this guy cook a little bit. Yeah, he really kind of held him back. And I'm curious to see what Pete Carmichael does after that. I kind of have a feeling the Saints are going to be very boring moving forward very conservative offensively they're going to run the football a little bit more and try to win games on defense <sighs> there's some infrastructure there though there I'm is i mean they should the be really good defense. like mickey loomis still around and like the the you know people talk about infrastructure and culture or whatever the saints were largely a franchise with pretty terrible culture and then mickey loomis comes in and sean payton comes in there's a chance for them to capitalize off of this culture. Now, that may mean a down year or two until you figure out the quarterback thing. But one of the things I was most struck by, I read a lot about the Sean Payton retirement just because someone who wasn't a Saints fan but also could recognize what that guy meant to that city and that fan base and really just the entire franchise. One of the things I like that stuck out was they have competent people in place now. And so, like, if you're a Saints fan thinking that was like a flash in a pan and like the golden era, that may be the case from talking about the golden era. But there's enough competent people in place now. I actually think they're going to be fine. I think so, too. I mean, they've got so many pieces there. But what happens with Alvin Kamara? That is – yeah, see, it's a I mean, is, he, is he going to prison? Yeah. yeah. What was the deal with – so he probably doesn't face prison time with that. Basically, when Ronnie gathered, he got drunk and beat the shit out of a guy at a casino yeah. or something. Yeah. If I remember correctly, they were on an elevator. The guy tried to get on the elevator and – Kamara put his hand up and he slapped his hand out and then said something to one of his entourage and they beat the shit out of him. I mean, just beat the shit out of him. Look, that seems like a healthy fine and maybe a suspension and then it's all said and done with. Like, I don't, like, that guy's not seeing jail time and the dude's suing him probably wants money. And I'm not saying he's wrong for doing that, but like, I think you're, I don't think Alvin Kamara is going to Plaxico Burris it or something, but uh, it's a. Uh, Fascinating stuff. The last thing, though, before we get out of here, we got to do Pelicans Corner. They, I know they lost three in a row. Now, did they win to? No, that did they win tonight? Or no, they played. They played tomorrow. Uh, yeah, they came out of the All Star break hot, and then lost an overtime game that they should have won in Denver, and then have just fallen apart since. Brandon Ingram gets hurt. CJ McCollum is COVID. 
Luckily, everybody else around them is still losing, so they're still in the playoff spot. But I'll tell you what, man. After a, what was it, one and thirteen, and was it two and sixteen or three and sixteen start? They've kind of figured it out. They're a five hundred club in the best West in a half a decade. Yeah, and still without Zion. That's the and Brandon Ingram has missed a significant amount of time, and they did the McCollum trade, which. I think they lost their first three games after CJ got there because the acclimation was weird. It's funny watching the team. They play really hard. I think they really buy into Willie Green. I know they really buy into Willie Green. I mean, hell, after they traded Josh Hart, he sat courtside at their game wearing a Pelicans jersey after they traded him. And he said it was the most fun he's ever had playing basketball in his life. Like, So they're buying into their coach. All that's good but you can see them operate with a glaring hole. The roster, even after the McCollum trade, was designed for Zion. It was built for him. They're, they're playing a seven-footer at the four alongside another seven-footer just to get them used to what it will feel like when Zion is back. Like, they're, they're running two bigs right now. They're doing it. Just to, because that's the way the team is constructed, you can tell that they're so close and if he does return to his pre-summer surgery form, they are maybe not NBA Finals contenders, but they're legit, like really good, just if he's healthy. And you can see that they, they built this team with him in mind, and he's not there, and you can feel that hole every night. Talk about the culture and them being a fun team to watch and them all seemingly like each other, which I agree. I don't know if I can call myself a Pelicans fan yet, but I've certainly like followed a lot of the Pelican stuff this year. And he seems to be the one outlier, he being Zion. How much do you buy into the Zion not necessarily being a great culture guy? Because he's a fascinating story from the standpoint of like everyone loved him out of Duke. He seems like a nice kid. I think it's completely almost indisputable at this point. He has not done maybe everything necessary to – get back on the court as quickly as possible and keep some of the weight stuff off, which again, young kid, NBA, whatever. Some guys take longer to figure it out. But then you had the whole weird story where he, like McCollum hadn't talked to him a few days after the trade. How much do you buy him of not wanting to be there, not being a culture fit, or is that just NBA national media not getting it? Um, I, there's probably truth to all of it, truthfully. I mean, when you get the the president of the Players Association on your roster – and you, as the supposed face of the franchise, don't even reach out to him, there's clearly something wrong there. There's clearly a disconnect. He's cle he clearly hadn't taken care of his body. Um, and, and, I mean, J.J. Reddick goes on first take, who was a teammate of his for two years, and says that is the he's a distant teammate. Who doesn't do stuff like that. No, that, he does not do stuff like me. that. Um, because it's true. That, that's why. So, so whether it's – he he wants to be there or doesn't want to be there or, or maybe he's not mature enough to take on that role, whatever the case may be. Um, you're still a professional at the end of the day. And when you, instead of using Aaron Nelson, who they hired from Phoenix, who apparently is one of the best athletic trainers in the league. And instead of using him for your rehab, you use your stepdad and an outcast strength and conditioning coach that was fired from LSU in two, after two months on the job, and you run away to Portland to work out with that guy and your stepdad instead of one of the most respected people in the game, something is off. And it's not just he doesn't want to be there. Because it doesn't matter, he's got to be there for like four more years. So 
something is up beyond he doesn't want to be there. Because Anthony Davis didn't want to be there, and he was there for seven years. And yeah, he's injury prone because he's injury prone. He didn't do anything like this. That family has very much LeVar Ball vibes without the public facing big ball. Yeah. There, that, there's, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff there. I think they're getting the 10 seed. My biggest question, because if Portland gets the 10 seed, they're going to be actively pissed off, it seems like. So, like, I think they're getting the 10 seed. I'm curious if they pass the Lakers. But, hell, even if you go play, like, a Minnesota or whatever the case might end up being, like, are you, like I wouldn't be – I wouldn't count the Pelicans out, this version of them against anyone to make them no. Well, I mean, when they're healthy, they're actually really good and fun. I mean, they really are. They're, they're good and fun right now. I, I've, I've actually enjoyed this season for the most part. They've got a good big in Jonas. They've got a veteran point guard. They've got Brandon Ingram. Herb Jones from Alabama is awesome. one of the best defenders I've ever seen. He's just – they've got it all. And, and Larry Nance is going to be coming back soon, and they haven't ruled out Zion coming back before the season's over. Pelican. I wouldn't be – Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers kind of tanked this. Oh, I mean, yeah. there's no benefit to them, you know, and it's kind of selfish, I guess. But you you don't have that much longer with LeBron. Do you really want him on the court to get the 10 seed to lose in the play-in? Or do you shut him down because he's had knee trouble this year and try to attract some free agents to make another run? Because 37 years old is 37 years old, no matter how freak of an athlete he is. That body's not holding up like it used to. So do you shut him down? Because it doesn't matter with your pick, right? If they, if they get a top 10 pick, it goes to New Orleans. If it's 11 or worse, it goes to Memphis. They don't have a pick this year. Whew. Yeah, awful, awful roster management. But um, So it doesn't matter. Getting in the plan doesn't matter. You're not winning a championship. You're not getting anything. So do you shut him down? I wonder if they'll consider that. I mean, the yeah, and the Russell Westbrook aspect of it is just I mean it, it never it, made LeBron sense. Idea. No, it didn't make any sense. And like the fact that it came out after it's like LeBron really wanted him. Like I now that makes sense. I get that because he's as great of a player as he's a terrible GM. But I don't know. Hopefully the Pels can get in and get at the eight seed and play a playoff series. That'd be pretty sick. Um this is Pelicans basketball corner, Michael Borky. We will, uh we ended with a bang there. We will uh, do this. You've lost all your audience by now. Every <laughs> single person. No, I think we got some Pelicans flock in there. We'll, we'll see how this rates. I'll check the, uh, check the metrics after. I appreciate the time I'm in. We'll do this again soon. Of course, man. Anytime. All right. That is our show. If you made it to the end, I appreciate you guys making us a part of your day. Gave you a nice long podcast to uh, end the week because we only got out two this week again. Sometimes it happens with the schedule. Now that we're in the season where it's not basketball and baseball anymore, I think we'll get in a little consistent routine, right, as conference play hits, uh, which is one of my favorite times of the year. Love college baseball. I don't think that's any secret at this point. And we're going to have SEC play with some March Madness stuff on the peripheral. So looking forward to that. Um, we'll be back with probably a mailbag Sunday type of thing. Colin and I will have our usual Sunday conversation. but We'll probably open it up to uh, questions as well. Like I mentioned, it's a nice spot as Ole Miss is entering conference play. Get some thoughts from the listeners and uh, go from there. It's a little makeshift for the uh, people's holiday being thrown off schedule. So, y'all have a great start to your weekend. Maybe it's already started. Hope you're enjoying whatever you're doing listening to this. And uh, Colin and I will catch you on Sunday.